Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm Alex Myla. I'm here with Chris Yates, and you're listening to episode six of Don't Fret, a Guitar Builders Podcast. Daniel here from Pepper Fox Guitars, who, if you haven't seen his work, is pretty amazing. He puts a modern twist on some of the classics that we have, kind of, you know, hearkening back to the vintage instruments with a shreddy type feel. Did I get that right, Daniel? <laughs> it's probably too nice, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, why, don't, why don't you tell everyone uh, kind of... A little about you and kind of how Pepper Fox Guitars came to be. Yeah, man. Thanks for the tee up. Um, yeah, so um, we were talking a little bit ago before we started recording, but I was always into, I was explaining the uh, my first guitar, which was a old Epiphone acoustic that would, looking back on it, it was so hard to play. It's amazing that I, I kept with it. I, it was probably so painful that I probably should have stopped, but you know, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, um, I was actually infatuated and I don't have any issues sharing with it. You know, I was infatuated by, um, the safety fire guys, their, their wirebirds. Um, I don't think Sam builds anymore with wirebird, but, um, I just thought, you know, I could probably maybe build one of these myself. And I, and when I first got into building, I actually just did, a Warmoth build, um, you know, spec'd one out. It was finished already, so I didn't have to mess around with the finishing. But when it came, I, uh, you know, bolted it together and realized, oh, the magic's actually in the setup because, you know, it played terribly. You know, you got to file the nut and do all those other little things. But once I, you know, practiced on that thing, I thought, you know, it's not that complicated. It's a slab body and the neck doesn't have a, a scarf joint or anything. I was like, I could probably build one of these. And then down the rabbit hole you go. So that was oh, kind of how I got into it. That that that's it, man. I mean, it, it it. I mean, I think for a lot of us. I mean, for me especially too. My the bug started with the Warmoth build too, and I still have that at home. And I, you kind of have this this thing. You're like, well, really, how hard can it be? Um, and, and it, you know, that initial, yeah, that initial bit of like, come on, you know, if they can do it, I could do it too. Is kind of propelled me to do it as well and i actually named my blog how hard can it be after that <laughs> um my buddy sid uh he was the or my classmate and drummer from med school in india um he was he would always end up saying he's like you're you're you're, you're if i have something in my head that i want to do he's like you're gonna do it it's gonna be how hard can it be huh and i'm like that's exactly how it's gonna be yeah but uh but yeah man no i um the, how, how did um I guess from from there, where where did where did it go when you finally got that that bug? Because I'm always interested in this. From I know talking to Chris about it when we first met up, and everyone's journey is similar but different. But every there's some common threads that everyone's like, man, I get you. Yeah, let's see. I remember at the beginning, you know, I I wanted to try to like most people, I. I and forgive me, I'm trying to put my, my mind back in that time. 
I want to say I bought a router was the first tool that I bought. And <laughs> I think and a, and a planer. I did buy a planer because I what ended up happening is, you know, you go on, you know, Stumac or or I think Warmoth even actually sells um, neck blanks and body blanks as well. And um, I bought so I bought a body blank and I bought a neck blank and I turned both of them into firewood. And I thought, wow, that was a lot of money just to make some mistakes. I probably need to figure out how to, you know, buy this wood on the cheap from my local lumber supplier and and uh, make cheaper firewood. And so it's funny. I I bought so I bought the planer and I bought some. Um, it was actually Peruvian walnut. Not a wood that I would use again, but it looked beautiful. It looked like rosewood or walnut. Um, just not my favorite to work looking back on it. But, you know, it was affordable and it had the aesthetic that I liked. Anyway, so I bought a bunch of board foot of that stuff and I bring it home and I'm running it through my brand new planer. And I'm like, why is this thing so janky? Not the planer, but the wood itself. And I'm like, oh, if you plane a crooked piece of wood, it's just going to mirror image that same curve to the other side and so I was like shit so I need to buy a jointer and so down you can see where this is going <laughs> and so you just end up making all these mistakes I eventually made a damn neck out of it but um I, my, the first guitar I built um I what I what I did is I printed out at work I printed out we uh, I work in kind of in the construction industry and so we have these massive printers for printing out um uh, you know, job drawings for construction. And so I printed out a Telecaster neck that was a uh, true to size PDF, printed it out, brought it home. And I bought some MDF from Lowe's or wherever. And I, and I, uh, glued it onto the MDF and I cut it out and, uh, sanded it to the line and then modified the headstock to kind of make it my own anyway. So I made my own templates with, um, with that. And then I modified the body and, and I built my first guitar with, with templates, um, and, and a router that I had. And I was like, man, this is, you know, it's, I've got it down. It's actually not that difficult, but, um, it was taken forever. And that was the part that I didn't like. Um, I've got two I kids. I hear you on that. I've got two kids at home, man. I was like, what can I do? And so I, uh, that's when, that's what actually took me down the CNC rabbit hole was, um, just trying to speed up time more than anything. And so, yeah, from there it was just, you know, creating CAD drawings and uh, Rhino is what I used. And then I would export the, the files into Fusion to make tool paths because I work on a Mac and I don't think Rhino had a CAM version for Mac. I don't think they did. So that's the reason that I used Fusion. But yeah, that's how I built all the, you know, the last 10 or so guitars that I built were all uh, on my CNC machine through that. That's awesome, man. So I'm curious, did you have uh, like CNC experience prior to using it on guitars or did you learn from scratch uh, just in order to build guitars? Yeah, learned from scratch. It was uh, just kind of a, a necessity. It was born out of necessity. How was that learning curve? It was tough, man. I, I think I started online. There was, and I forget the name of it. Maybe it was a, a, a web-based CAD called maybe Onshape. I might be getting that wrong, but I started there and it had, if I remember right, just simple extrusion type CAD functionality. So you could make a body, but if you wanted to, 
model anything like a belly carve that's three-dimensional. I don't think you could do that on there. And so that's when I downloaded Fusion. And I don't get me wrong, I love Fusion for free. It's great, but it gets kind of buggy because it's all online-based. And so um, I ended up getting Rhino. And so I uh, that's and that's a totally different, man, you could go down a CAD rabbit hole. I'm, I'm just now figuring out as I'm trying to explain this. But um, Rhino's... <laughs> I almost nice. started that too. Like I wanted to use um, Fusion for using the Shaper Origin since they have like an export function. But then I was like, I kind of already know how to use Illustrator. So I'm going to just stick with that. Keep it simple. Um, it's like I, I, I'm in this Facebook group. Uh, I think it, one of the big players in it um, was Austin Shaner. And he does a lot of video tutorials. And I think he has a Patreon on um, how to make certain aspects of a guitar and he held a contest like he gave out all his plans and had people just kind of go with it and his stuff's pretty informative I don't know if you guys have heard of um, his stuff it's uh I'll try I think it's like fusion 360 guitar builders or something I'll find it and send it to you guys but uh I remember Austin Shaner is one of the uh the big guys in there he's got his YouTube page and everything too seems pretty like a pretty chill dude Nice. Yeah, that's the the next uh, like big leap that I need to take is uh, learning and implementing uh, CNC into my builds because I'm still using templates and uh, you know the very fancy routers, but <laughs> still it's all you know uh, it takes up a ton of my time, like you were saying. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm headed. Yeah. So I. I actually did the modeling probably for, I'm guessing three months before I actually bought a machine. And so I had, I had all my designs done. And the, really the only reason I did that was because, you know, if you research it online, a lot of the advice that you get is, oh, you need to figure out CAD before you just buy a machine. It's um, because there's a big learning curve there. And so I'd actually designed my, my, um, files and everything before and then this was probably 2000 I'm gonna guess 2018 or 2019 is when I bought the machine and um, I've talked about it a lot over on seven string but um, it was a, it's an open build so you can still buy it it's the lead model it, it comes in <laughs> comes in a box and it's all inventoried but you have to put it together yourself and so that was another learning curve where you had to that they do a great job. They they actually produce these videos that are about, God, at least an hour long where they go step by step on how to build the machine. And um, that's how I, that's how I built it. It's not, you know, it's not going to be super robust, like a, you know, a more expensive model, but for what I do on it, it it's a, uh, it does a great job. And what was the manufacturer again? It's a company called open builds. They're, I think they're based okay. in, in New York, I believe, but they had a forum and I, I, I gravitated towards them for two reasons. They're, they were affordable and I was, you know, dipping my toe into it. So I didn't want to invest a, a ton of money, but they had an online forum. And so if people had, you know, issues or questions, a lot of people had run into the same things that I was running into. And so there was a community of people that could help. And that was really nice. Yeah. That drew me to it just to have that support. That's amazing. I'm, you know, Chris, we were, we were talking about woodcraft the other day, yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. 
and I there was one that just got fully stocked here in Vegas about maybe like 20 minutes away um I went there the other day and got, got that's where I got all my um epoxy stuff for this build I'm building for Karan Katyar um <laughs> and um I saw that they had a bunch of CNC's of different sizes there from different companies and I was like oh my god <laughs> I, and, and and I remember what you said Chris you were just like that place is dangerous like, Dude, I I will walk, walk out, out with something what will you walk out with a smile on your face, but really poor? <laughs> <Every time. laughs> oh my god, you can spend so much uh, also, money on those things. Yeah, yeah, I found the woodcrafts vary dramatically from city to city. Also, like the one we have here in Boise is actually pretty good. Uh, and then we went to the one in Salt Lake last time we were down there, and it was like the saddest version of a woodcraft I've ever been into. Oh, <laughs> so oh, if you're no. recently, like recently stocked and recently open, that's awesome. That's crazy, yeah, man. There, the the one I that we had, um, it was in like Orange County, didn't have any of the the fancy high end stuff. It was mainly just the very very particular, you know, specialty hand tools and stuff like that. So I that's what. I thought all woodcrafts were until mm. I saw this one and I was like, Oh, they really are. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. super different. Yeah. I should tell you what you just said about the hand tools reminds me of that story that I was telling about creating firewood with that first body blank that I bought. And so y yeah. you guys know when you buy a body blank, they're like one and three quarters inch thick, just standard telecaster yeah. thickness. Well, I wanted mine to be, obviously much thinner. It's the way, you know, it's the way wirebirds were. It's what I wanted to build. And I was like, how the hell am I going to get this thing thinner? And so I, I went to, I remember going to Lowe's and I bought, um, I bought a, it was like angle iron basically. And so I, and I, and I used that and some JB weld to create a makeshift, one of those, uh, like a router sled things that you see on. Yeah. Like a, a, a gantry. Yeah, exactly. So I built one of those and it was fine. And I got it down to, you know, a millimeter or two over thickness. And I was like, how am I going to get this thing smooth? And sanding was not the solution. I promise you, because <laughs> my arms were so tired just from trying to get this thing down anyways. And so I bought, I bought like an old Stanley hand plane and, a new, and I bought mm. a new knife for it. And I was, that was, I, I learned immediately. I'm like, I'm not a hand tool guy. I don't know how to sharpen this thing. It's not taking off like these beautiful ribbons of wood like you see online. It's just taking <laughs> off chunks. I'm like, to hell with this. And that's when I bought the, yeah. the planer. <laughs> well, at least it's better than my first foray. I mean, I didn't realize when I, when I did my first scratch build um, that planers existed. And being in India, I didn't have, I didn't know the local language and stuff. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, I'll just use a chisel and hammer. Um, <laughs> and I, and I tried chiseling out um like the thickness of the body and then you know basically planing it flat so that took all of like a month um <laughs> and then when someone's like you know there's a tool for that and they and the guy showed me um and it was just down the street also to add insult to injury i um i cried and died a little inside and then was like all right well this is this is learning process but that was terrible and Early in the archives of my um, my blog, like you can find, like we're talking like back in like 2011, 2010 or something like that, you'll find 
the like small resolution pictures of that whole experience and so it, it exists and uh I want to take it up, take it out out of the internet, but at the same time, it's really funny. I'm gonna go dig it up later today. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! If we do, if we didn't have those experiences, though, I don't know that I don't know that we would be as fulfilled or, or rewarded whenever you finish a guitar that you know maybe you didn't have as many mistakes on because the, every guitar that I've built always ha- always has something that you have to kind of you know fight against to make it to make it perfect. No, there's never a step that goes that's, you always have one step that's like, oh, it wasn't perfect. Exactly. I think those little mistakes is what makes the the hobby kind of rewarding. Totally. Not yeah, I don't know, uh, Daniel, if you ever had the opportunity to listen to uh, Soli's old podcast, The Luthierist. Um, oh, but he, I've listened uh, to a few he, of those, man. He, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, for whatever reason, the timing worked out that I like discovered that podcast uh, right before I had to drive back and forth to like between California and Idaho a couple times. So I just listened to every single episode, and this was like as I was getting into guitar building. Uh, and one thing that Sully said is like, you know, he handed off a a build to a customer, and you know they're super happy with it, and they would point out like one small flaw that they found and uh so they'd be like yeah i want me to point out the other like 10 that i'm aware of that you <laughs> like uh won't ever notice so yeah it's it's definitely something like when you're hand building guitars like it, it's not gonna be flawless yeah man I, I resonate with that so much just i mean even when you buy a new guitar uh, i'm never i'm never one that nitpicks a finish flaw or um even a tooling mark that got missed. I mean, I like to think that I've looked over all of my guitars and there's never anything wrong with them, but it happens. And I think that you're right, Chris, it's just part of the, part of the process. And it's just maybe not realistic is maybe the best way to say it, but I don't know. I think it gives it well, the charm. <clears throat> I, I think that that hand built uh sort of quality, I don't know, like it makes it feel like a more, uh, it, it, I guess in a way sort of like humanizes it. Cause I don't know if you've played, well, I, I'm sure you have, I'm sure we all have played like a, an absolutely flawless, like factory built guitar. And it's just like the most soulless feeling thing ever. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually looking at one right now on my rack. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like those small flaws, it, in, in a certain way, you know, unless they're like awful, um, add a little bit of, uh, let's see, accessibility, I guess, to the instrument. Yeah, a little bit of character bit of too. Character I mean, too. I mean, there's yeah, there's a, there's bit, a of, bit of, and I'm and I'm, I'm talking, talking, and I, and I, I think, think we're, we're all talking, talking about, about it. Um, it's, it's usually not like glaring, glaring you know, know, mistakes that are out there. It's oh, no, usually I'm like talking like a a small nick from like a a fret in file, yeah, or something like that. You know, just like real small. <laughs> yeah, like it, it, it. It's it's kind of those little marks that it's like you know there was there was an actual human hand that was doing this activity, and exactly. as long as it's not like a like a super crazy gouge or something that get, can be corrected, if it's just like a bipod yeah. product of like. A specific action like like that it's usually okay like i'm looking at my um so i i, ha- I have a um 
one of my two other seven strings. One's is one's is a Bose by um, Brian Bose from Canada, and the other is a um, Ernie Ball Sterling, like the JP Seven kind of model. Yep. And so when I first got the JP Seven, I, I I modded it a lot. I put uh, I routed out the the pickup cavities so I can put in uh, EMG fifty seven sixty sixes in there, um, and mm-hmm. um, played with the action and filed the nut a bit and so it plays like just like how i would um how i would set up a guitar but i remember uh, but i'm looking at like the the fit and finish aside from the setup and for a factory guitar this is phenomenal like it's it's everything that you would want in a guitar but i remember picking it up and i was like this guitar just I know it's more factory. I know it's mass produced. I know it's the the cheaper end of what these guys can offer, and it just doesn't really have a soul. But it's it's going back to what you were saying, uh, Daniel, before when you um, when you got 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 a guitar and you set it up yourself, like how you would play it. It it kind of puts a little bit more life into it too. So when I, when I get a guitar from another builder, like I one of my guitars are from is from Michael Hinnant. And he makes some pretty cool stuff. At some point, we want him to have him on too. But um, I, I there was a model he posted like two, three years ago. And man, this wind outside is bad. There's a model he posted like two, three years ago. And it's just white, white, um, like Arctic flat white finish um, with black pickups, black neck, um, and everything. It was just this kind of inverse tuxedo type, type of look. And so I wanted it. And so I was like, can I can I buy that from you? Um, and I held it. And I mean, you know, as a as a builder, you're going to be naturally looking for things that are wrong with it or imperfections, and you find them. But then, depending on what they are, you know, you end up. I don't know. For me, it just incor- incorporated it into the the beauty of the instrument. Like I know that he worked very hard on this instrument and whatever little imperfection i think i found like it's like something like that a little 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 nick in in um like rounding a you know a a fret or something like that or and it's you to the casual glance you are not going to find it um right like to to 99 of people who who play guitar they're not going to find it they're not going to find a lot of those things because we all know what we're looking for um and I, I look at that, I was like, other than this, this guitar is damn near perfect. Like, and it plays really well, plays in a different way. Like I, it, it's set up the way he would probably set up a guitar. And I looked at that, I'm like, I actually like the way this plays. I may try to incorporate some aspects of this into my own repertoire. And so mm-hmm. I almost felt like those kind of experiences help you kind of level up to also gives you a barometer to compare how you're doing to someone who's building professionally, someone who's really um, takes care in their craft. So it's, it's an, it's a whole different experience. I feel like people really, really want handmade perfection, but forget that that's an oxymoron. Right. (laughs) There was a thread. Go ahead, Alex. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on you. No, 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 no. I, I and just just to wrap up, I was just like, it's it's a standard that I think as builders, like I I'm like 
I, I need to get that perfection. And then there's a certain point where I'm like, I've built a good instrument right now. I've built it as perfect as I can make it. And there's certain, there's one or two things here that I feel like if I were to go in and spend the work to change, I might make things worse. Um, and, you know, as long as it's not something that's immediately visible to the to the naked eye, something that doesn't compromise playing, something that's that you have to be looking for in order to find it, I'm okay at that point to being like, I'm going to stop before I make things worse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. There was a... There was a thread actually over on Seven String. I, I love that place, by the way. It's actually where I met Alex. And, I, I, uh, I, I think that's also where I met Alex. Where I met Alex. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of the the very common threads between a lot of us because I think we all find that place and then nest there, share experiences, learn, and then connect offline, and that's how this happens. Well, and also, uh, I was going to mention Daniel something that you said earlier was that you were sort of inspired uh to get into building like from the safety fire dudes and i i feel like that whole era of um you know like there were just like a million progressive metal bands coming out all at the same time but they all played guitars from these like weird boutique builders um i that that definitely needs to be like credited to a whole additional generation of small builders because that's sort of what absolutely got me into building also um oh yeah you know not not the safety fire specifically um but uh i did actually i managed to see them in sacramento at like a tiny little venue with intervals oh <laughs> like my god that's incredible ago. that was a fun show. um and scale the summit <clears throat> um yeah that was that was rad but yeah and they were playing like you know strandbergs before strandberg was like a big name and right uh what uh black black cat um black cat guitars that's right i remember this whole, black cat. that whole show i was just like oh man someday <laughs> you know i'll i'll be able to build something as cool as that but um, i mean yeah black just, machine was kind of the do. one that kicked it off for me man like when, when i oh, saw yeah, same, when like, i saw that yeah, and it had these aesthetics i was just like i am hooked yeah i need i need to learn well, more about this yeah, and Daniel, I saw I think on your Instagram that one of your more recent builds is uh, living with an authentic black machine, which is pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, I texted that to Alex the other day. Um, that build was so I, I I too was like a lot of folks, and they get a lot of hate online, and I think is it is what it is. I um I don't feel that way about them. I think black machines are they're inspiring, man. You know, when you see one, they 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 pull something out of your you know. If you've yeah something out of the the creative side of your mind where it's like wow that's that's different and alluring and I, I like that about them and so I'm a fan is what I'm trying to say but um oh to, so my beauty and simplicity my, yeah my first three builds ever my first one is <clears throat> uh, actually very uh, much in the same vein as yours Daniel it was like a black machine inspired telly. Uh, that I built in my backyard with just a router. <laughs> um, and then uh, the two builds after that were a B6 clone and then a B7 clone. The one with the Kokomolo neck you built is, I've looked yeah. at that thread about a million times. Like, I'm serious. <laughs> so, I'm trying to figure out, like, because there was a time whenever I was going to build a scarf-jointed neck. And, mm -hmm. my, and doing that on a CNC was just 
I didn't have time to figure it out. And I was like, how did Chris totally. do that? And I was like, I, I need to do it by hand. And I just, I'm just going to have to get the rasp out and carve this neck myself <laughs> instead of, uh, Maybe I'll make a, because uh, I the way that I do it now is like stupid simple. Maybe I'll make a short video and send it to you. <laughs> but uh, so that that B7 was the third guitar that I ever built. And it uh, it's a miracle that the the scarf joint neck headstock situation turned out as good as it did. <laughs> like in retrospect, it was so like flying by the seat of my pants uh, style. And it's. Like, luckily, I was apprenticing under my buddy Hugo um, Mermay of Mermay Guitars, and so he, like, had some input in helping me not, like, totally ruin this neck, but, uh, yeah, it's it was a lot of luck. <laughs> now, remind me, on that one, did you, was the headstock um, multi-piece as well, or did you use a, a solid piece so that you didn't have to line up the the little strips uh, it's a solid piece. Yeah, man. I, I, um, I can't tell you how many, uh, scarf jointed blanks I glued up and what I couldn't figure out with, with, um, and it, I think it had to do with my machine and its limitations. It wasn't, I could never get it perfectly square, which is fine if you're doing, you know, mm. you, it was good enough for what I was doing, but whenever I would, um, and I, I used a lot of indexing so that I could do two-sided operation. I could never get it perfect. And so I remember one of the things um, that I tried to do was get the, uh, I, I made a bunch of three-piece neck blanks that I would scarf joint. And um, I could never get the laminations to be perfect. And that drove me nuts. Oh, and so you were, you were laminating the headstock also? Yeah, I'd make one big piece and then I'd, I'd I'd cut the uh I'd cut the angle on my table saw. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd smooth it out and then glue it and then it would look good on one side, but I couldn't get it to look perfect on the other side. And so that was Gotcha. Yeah, I mean the the way that I do all my Mobius builds now is I'll do like a five piece neck and then uh <clears throat> uh route the angle um, for the scarf joint at the end and then glue on a single piece um, of like a different or complementary wood for the headstock and then mill that flush to the top surface where the fretboard gets glued on um, and then glue on like a I usually go with like a four to five millimeter veneer uh, for the for the headstock and so then that way I don't really have to worry about like lining up the laminates. Cause yeah, that would be uh kind of a nightmare. <laughs> Super frustrating. I was actually going to say very similarly, like when I used to do a lot of scarf joint stuff, um, I would always end up putting a, like a, a veneer on the back or like a, like a sandwich kind of like a light and then dark, depending on what the wood color was to make it. And so it just looked very, um, just very, classy at that point but also i wouldn't have to worry about the joint area um and some will say oh it adds a little extra strength i'm like you're talking a couple millimeters of extra wood there and yeah it's dude, not gonna like... not gonna do much yeah um but it definitely looks good and i'm looking back at my my carillion guitar right now um by chris mm -hmm. Dilia, and he does the same too he does the you know he, you've seen his stuff where he does like these 11 piece laminated necks mm -hmm. um and he, what he'll do is um, the actual scarf joint piece is very thin 
for the headstock, but he puts a thick um, ebony veneer on top with his logo. And then he'll do a, a small light colored veneer on the back and then another thick uh, ebony cap, which somehow he he manages to bend for the uh, near the volute area, which I'm, I'm wondering if he just puts a thicker cap on the back and then sands it so he can just carve it, uh, carve that carve in the back. But it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous headstock. Yeah, I'm looking at, um, I've seen his builds. I'm looking at his Instagram right now to try to see an example of what you described and I think I found one. Yeah, that's a lot of time. Here, I'll send a picture to you guys in the group chat for this. But man, it is, man, he's he is something else. Like this is like some some next level stuff here. Yeah, yeah. What he might do for that the the curved ebony uh, back of headstock veneer is use like um, one uh God, I forget what they're actually called. It's like the the hot cylinder that um acoustic builders use for bending the sides. Mm-hmm. Um where like you basically you get the wood like soaking wet and then you basically just sort of like roll it almost like uh you're shaping clay like onto the side of this big drum and that will uh cause the wood to curve. So he might be using something like that for those headstocks. That I makes sense. Right. Man, I bet you'd have Before to get that volute like perfectly smooth so that when you glue that on, there's not a nasty glue seam. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I tell you, th- those parts freak me out when gluing. Oh, I got your text, Alex. Let's see this thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the reaction. That, oh, that's yeah. That, that's it. That's it right there. What's beautiful is the way that um, so you've got the ebony. I know people that are listening to this don't have a clue what we're talking about, but it's a back of a headstock veneer that's got an ebony is the face that you can see. And then just below it, there's a thin, maybe, what do you think guys, maybe one or one mil of, of uh, maple, of maple, but maple, you can't yeah. see like, a glue scene. Maybe. Yeah. And so he had to have sanded that to perfection so that whenever he glued it, there wasn't a gap of any sort all around that thing. That's, man, that's the joinery there is beautiful. That's so nerdy. Yeah. (laughs) I tell you, it's like, it's those little details that you're just like, like for the most people, people are going to be like, that's cool. But you give it to a builder or someone who's, who's either tried to do it or did it, but wasn't too satisfying. You see, see someone that executes it perfectly. You're like, oh. Oh man, mm-hmm. that's nice. Yeah, not to go back to Black uh, Machine on purpose, but I think that's the reason that I was always drawn to them is because the designs could stand on their own. Like even when whenever he would build the um, the ash-bodied one, the B6, the stripped-down one, it, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't have anything special about it. It was just a maple neck with some, um, it, you know, it was those really thin, like I think they're poplar that they just dye black. Um, with those strips in it and it's a one piece or a three piece neck, but it's not scarf jointed. It's voluted, but, um, there's nothing mm-hmm. fancy about it. There's no figured woods or anything, but the design itself stands on its own. So that, I think that's the reason why that, that guitar brand was so, um, coveted maybe is the word. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, like people will say it's like, oh, you know, it's a strat shape. It's been done before. The headstock is a Parker shape. But I'm like, it's not about that, though. People, it's, to me at least, it goes, like you were saying, it's the overall um, 
fitments and um, aesthetics that go with it. Plus, it's got that whole, uh, you know, Cartman, you can't get into my amusement park, um, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, vibe to it where it's like exclusivity. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like yeah. immediately, like any picture of a black machine, I saved my computer. So the ebony top, you know, just that alone, I was like, wow, I haven't seen anyone do that before. But that now when I see an ebony top guitar or swamp ash guitar with a dark neck and headstock, I'm thinking black machine. So my last one, um, my last build last year, the soul belly guitar, it's essentially my homage to that workhorse type of guitar look. And so I have the ash body, complete rosewood neck and fretboard and headstock. Um, and I was just like, you know, even though this is my shape and my, my neck and everything, I still think of a black machine when I look at it. Um, and so his, his choices, um, have kind of transcended through what the actual guitar looks like in my mind. And yeah, you know, you can, um, I may not agree entirely with the whole, um, Ormsby hype machine type, uh, capitalization, but that is the market, you know, that's how, that's how you capitalize on something. But, um, you know, we all know where it came from. Um, and I kind of wish in a way that Doug had, you know, jumped on that momentum, but as someone who builds kind of as a hobby, more or less, um, I do understand the kind of joy you get in having something that's hard to get and you build kind of when you want to, how you want to, and it's up for first refusal. Um, yeah, there's something about that I respect. Yeah, same. I mean, yeah, we all, we've all got day jobs too. And so if I was ever in the position to like, you know, turn guitar building into a job, I, I think I'd have a lot of second thoughts just because I, I wouldn't want it to strip the joy away from the craft. I can tell you that I, I do enjoy building guitars that I spec out much more than a client, you know, specking out. 100 percent yeah so uh another question i had uh which i i got into briefly uh in our text chat is your finishing so you said that you still have uh an hvlp setup how did you uh did you get into finishing because of guitars or was that like a skill that you already had going into it no, I think the extent of my building skills prior to guitars was like, oh, we screened in my back patio at my old house and it was like cedar two by fours that were pre-stained and you'd cut it at a 90 degree angle. That was literally the extent of my woodworking and um, painting was just, you know, a, a roller, you know, you paint the walls of your house. So no, it was born out of necessity, but I have, I've got one of those personalities where it's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And so, um, yeah, that's, I think you kind of need to, to like build guitars properly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You got to make the plunge, man. And so the first guitar that I built yeah. was with rattle cans from, uh, re-ranch. I don't think that they're doing business any longer. I think COVID kind of put the brakes on their, on their little, they were a small business, but I bought some stuff from them. They're here. They're here in the Dallas area. Um, Dude, they were, they were, everyone was talking about re-ranch when, you know, in the, in the builder circle, like they were kind of it for a while until Stu Mac also started their bunch of finishes too. Mm -hmm. 
And what ended up happening is I had a client that wanted um, a color that you just couldn't buy. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just mix up my own colors and, you know, mix, mix the lacquer with the pigments and spray it. And so, um, the hard, honestly, the hardest part about finishing is grain filling for me. It's tedious. It's time consuming. It's one of those things where you, you know, you do a coat and then you wait. And there's a lot of waiting involved in, in finishing. And so, um, once I got that down, I knew that, you know, spraying on a finish is not difficult. And so I, I bought a Fuji spray, I forget the model, but it's an HVLP, um, gravity fed gun. And I, I shoot, um, it used to be Bellens, but I think Bellens like fully got pulled under the Mohawk brand and I just shoot their classical stringed in, instrument lacquer. It's just a, it's just a good quality nitrocellulose. I've shot their other lacquer, but I just didn't like it as much. Um, I built one guitar. I, I still have it with that. And I didn't like the way that it cured. It took forever to cure. It's kind of tacky forever, but the string it, the stringed instrument lacquer that they sell would dry to the touch within a day. And then you could wet sand nice. in about a week or two. And the other stuff you got to <laughs> wait like a month. And I just don't have time for that. Gotcha. Uh, and then after, so I'm just curious about your, like your, the finishing process that you use. So after wet sanding, then uh, how do you, do you have like a buffing wheel that you run everything over? Or do you do that uh, like by hand? I do it by hand. Yeah. So the process for me is I'll shoot like a thin down sealer or you can do sealer or lacquer. It's to me, it's the same. Just, I think the solid content is just a little bit different with the sealer like vinyl sealer is what I use. And then I'll grain fill it. And then I will shoot more sealer and then level sand it. And then I'll start with either my primer coat or um, if it doesn't need primer, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and shoot the color, scrape the binding, and then just pump a bunch of uh, lacquer on it. And then you know it's gonna have orange peel and all that stuff. And then I'll wet sand from like 400 800 I think it goes to 1500 2000 and then 3000 and 3000 will get it looking pretty nice it'll look like one of those Gibsons that came out of the you know like the Murphy lab that's kind of dulled down but no then I just hit it with mm -hmm. um some polishing compound in an old I'll, I'll get one of my I took an old t-shirt that was really soft and uh I cut it into pieces and I'll I'll buff it with that and it nice you, if you go through all the grits, man, it's pretty easy to get a good shine on a nitro guitar because whenever you rub it, it gets real warm and it just, mm -hmm. it just polishes. It's, uh, it's nice. It's nice to work with. That's incredible, man. So the guitar I'm looking at right now, um, on your website has, it's like a, a black cracked nitro on top of Paisley. Uh, is that Paisley? That's one of my favorites. Or or is that like what is that underneath the black yeah a real quick a story about that guitar i built it for a guy that reached out to me he bought one of my first guitars which was a daphne blue one that it actually wasn't exactly daphne blue it was one of those deals where i mixed up the color myself and he bought it second i sold it to a guy and then that guy sold it to the guy's name's gordon awesome guy we've become friends over the internet much like you guys and um he bought it and had some um I think he had some troubles with his shoulder and so he needed a guitar 
his guitars needed to have a forearm contour. And so I actually bought that guitar back. It's in the rack in front of me right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, that's one, that's the, my favorite guitar I've ever built. And so whenever he was, um, offloading, I was like, give it to me. I, I want to have it back. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. And so that one is the process for that one was primer. And then the primer that I shoot, it actually, had, I had a bunch of re-ranch primer, and that stuff dries kind of matte. And um, and so I would shoot primer, and then I would shoot the nitro, the the lacquer itself. The, the lacquer will dry pretty much glossy. And so you need that glossy coat for the, the water slide to stick. That's actually Paisley water slide from Rothko and Frost, I want to say. It came from England. Oh, nice. Yeah, dude, that's who I use for all for all my binding. Yeah, yeah, they, they yeah they sell that real celluloid binding, and um, you can get some yep. of that stuff from Stumac too. But yeah, so that one is just their water slide. Um, I think they also I've never bought it, but I think they sell the paper too. And I just don't have the experience with the paper. I think you have to put an adhesive down for the paper to stick. But that one's a water slide. Um, <laughs> that one was fun. I you end up cutting the little amoebas out with an exacto knife, and you can get creative with how you place them. And then, so, um, the first one I did was going to be a dead replica of Dez's with purple, but man, finishing mm. with nitro is, it can be a nightmare if you get contaminated. That guitar got fisheye in it, which, I mean, if you're not familiar with that, it's where the, the finish will get like an oil or a silicone on it. It can happen. Just yeah. Like I mean, that stuff contaminates the whole area. And I know a lot of oils have, uh, like, the general finishes, like Armor Seal. Some people were using that and wondering why when they went to, um, whatchamacallit, um, the, an, a regular nitro finish or poly finish, that stuff wasn't adhering. Yeah, it won't stick. It's just a little spot where there's something in there where the, you're exactly right, Alex, it just won't stick. And it creates these little pits in the finish. Well, something happened, and I was like, I was gutted. I mean, to, to order stuff from Rothko, it takes like, well, oh, I've had it take up to two months to deliver, just depending on customs. And so I reached mm -hmm. out to Gordon. I'm like, hey, man, I've got some blue and I've got some pink. And he, he elected to go with the blue. And so uh, anyways, once I got, I had to start over on that guitar. I had to sand it all back and clean it like crazy with mineral spirits and naphtha and you name it. And then so I shot the primer, shot the clear, and then it, put the blue paisley on the second go around and then you shoot it like with really light mist sprays if you go if you go wet on either a you know a headstock water slide decal or in this case you know these massive paisleys it'll uh it'll mess them up so you, you shoot a bunch of uh mist coats and then you can lay it on heavy and then so mm. lay on the the clear then you tape it off and lay on the black scrape the binding and then you finish it and then I, I, for that one, I finished it to look like a brand new black guitar. And then I relicked it after that. Nice. I love and that. For look. your, do, yeah, it looks fantastic for that. Uh, the cracked nitro effect does it, do you do that with like, uh, temperature changes or how did you pull that off? Exactly. I used, um, like keyboard cleaner, the compressed air or whatever. You turn it upside down. Oh, and sure. Shoot out the cold air that and the heat gun. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. I'm sitting here thinking you put it in like the freezer or something. 
people do that, but it always wigs me out because when you put it in the freezer, it gets moisture on it. I don't know. It just kind of messes mm. with my brain. And so I, I did the, <laughs> the air canned instead. Smart. Very smart. Yeah. Frank yeah. Brothers, which is a builder that I admire, they hang them in a freezer. And so if they do it, I know it's okay. Ah. But man, I don't know why. I just, it kind of, my brain couldn't accept the fact that I was getting moisture all over my guitar. <laughs> and I get that too. I'd be scared as well. It's the last thing I want to really introduce. And I mean, I live in a super dry place, so things move really quickly if water's introduced. Yeah. Alex, what's the, like in the summer, what's the humidity in Vegas? I mean, honestly, I've seen like 6% or something, 7%. All right. Um, so you're as dry as we are in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Let me see right now, because we got crazy wind right now. What is the, oh, I mean, it's like 46 right now. Um, yeah, I think I think we average around 20. So we, uh, w- when we moved up here, we uh, installed a humidification system in our HVAC. So it just humidifies the whole building. Oh, that's awesome. Tries to keep it at, at around 50. But uh, yeah, wood still moves more than I would like it to up here. <laughs> depending on where it, depending on where it came from like in california it was i it wasn't even something i had to think about because it's like it averages around 50 there just naturally right and wood was super easy to keep flat and then we moved up here and everything started moving <laughs> i was like oh no yeah i kind of just wait to see what it's gonna do if it's gonna do the pretzel act i mean i've been moving my um my like wood stash that with me from like California to Vegas, from Vegas to Reno, Reno back down to Vegas. And so I'm like, it's, I think it's pretty shocked. Um, and so the stuff that's moved has moved. And so I'm just kind of, I deal with it as it just comes. You know, one, one thing I I wanted to go through since now we have like, you know, all three of us on here is even though that we're, we're already like episode five or six right now. Um, we haven't really talked about our like our, our, our build process at all. Like we like mm. from start to finish, how do we how do we typically go? Because I know Chris, you and I have some pretty pretty different ways to go about stuff. And so Definitely. I figured it'd be be interesting to see how we how we all go about it. Um I don't know. Do one of you guys want to kick it off? Uh I I would need to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, or possibly write it down. Um, yeah, there's, there's because, yeah, because I still do everything with templates. There's so many steps. Um, I, I remember would be, that. Alex, if you want to start, um, sure. and I'll, I'll jot down some notes while you're going. Cause I'm curious, uh, cause you do pretty much everything with the origin, right? Pretty much. Um, I, I've tried to, I mean, I used to just do, I have templates for everything as well um, up until I got the origin. And then because, you know, when you get new technology, you're kind of hesitant to go full send into it. But I kind of went full send and was like, all right, we'll deal with the errors as they come. But the origin allows me to basically forego all templates. And so I, in Illustrator, put all my stuff in there. So my usually my build process kind of flip-flops from neck to um, body a couple times. But what I'll do is I'll usually start with the neck and, um, you know, I'll map it out in, in origin. That gives me, like, a good visual layout. And I have my um, 
my seven string neck here that has the rich light fretboard with it. Um, and I've just fretted it and I think I might have to go in and pop one or two frets out cause it didn't seat quite as well. Rich light's kind of a very finicky, um, material to work with. And for those who are trying to use, use it, uh, you'll want to use a bigger router bit, um, than your 0 0.023 to exactly fit the tang because this stuff will not comply like wood will. Um, anyways, so map out the neck, carve the neck, truss rod, and if you're doing something like extended scale or just want the extra um, reinforcement, you know, your reinforcement rods. I tend to run halfway or three quarters of the way uh, from the base of the neck up to the near where the nut is. Um, I I'm testing something right now with this prototype where instead of going the full length of the entire neck with reinforcement rods, I wanted to see if um, I have more, I guess, ability to manage the relief of my guitar if the rods don't go quite as quite as far. Um, and then I'll cut out the fretboard as well. Sometimes I'll do blind slots or pocketed slots. So I don't have to do a binding or fill fill the ends. For this one, I went straight through and did a normal fretboard. Um, and then usually I will, um, you know, cut with maybe a one millimeter offset, two millimeter, depending on how much I think I'm going to be taking off. Usually for softer woods, because you end up taking a lot more wood off uh, unintentionally when you're shaping the sides and you know trimming everything up to size I'll give a little bit more of an offset but this one I didn't leave too much um, I'll glue the fretboard to the neck and I'll use um, indexing pins or you know really really small drill bits um, I'll put two holes in the area where the nut slot is and then two um, in a fret uh, straddling the um, truss rod and so you know, glue up, use all the clamps. Is that for gluing mm -hmm. the fretboard on? Yeah. And interestingly enough, even though Rich Light is a non-porous um, material, I've used it two or three times before. Um, Type Bond 1 works really well with it when gluing to regular wood, so I haven't had any issues with delamination or anything like that. Some people say use epoxy, but um, haven't used that yet. Um after that, I'll kind of, if I need to kind of trim the sides, I'll do that. But usually it's pretty much spot on with the indexing pins. Um, and I'll save kind of final tidy up on the sides after I got my frets and side dots on. Um, usually with the, with everything glued in, I'll install the fret markers if I have any, um, either before or after gluing it on. And then the side dots. Um think oh and I guess like if someone's looking to you know follow a build process always check your truss rods beforehand like put it in a in a clamp and then twist it one way or another to make sure it behaves all right even though they test it in the factory you still want to do it yourself um, so once the fretboards and dots are in glued on you basically have a, a neck blank I'll um, at this point I'll measure the just how thick the, the heel is 
and just keep that in mind just in case just to see the difference in after i radius it doesn't do any good for the actual guitar process but i always like to see how much wood i take off the uh i'll radius the board and then measure plus the height of the crown of a fret and then that'll give me uh, an estimate of how deep the neck pocket will need to be um and so usually once i have that measurement i can go and start carving out or um, routing out my guitar body and I'll do that, carve the neck pocket, the pickup routes, and then put the guitar aside, the body aside, and then finish the neck. Um, I feel like the further along I go on the neck, the the less I want to manipulate it with other tools around, just because the moment I marsh something on the fretboard with the frets in, it's a pain in the ass to get that out without making everything look a little wonky. Um... I'll finish up the neck by installing the frets, um, carving out the back, um, and I'll do a rough shape just so whatever wood I'm going to remove from the back of the neck has been removed, and the rest is just like fine sanding or a sh little bit of shaping here, but the weight of um, the back of the neck will be gone at that point. And so whatever changes I might make to the when I do the leveling process should be pretty much true to how it's going to actually be. So at that point I'll, um, I will, uh, level, you know, recrown, polish the frets and then, um, kind of give it a nice little oil finish on the top and then tape off the entire fretboard just so I don't screw it up. Um, and then work on the back sand up everything, carve everything, the volutes at the, the neck joint and the heel. And I usually use like a inch thick or like, you know, 0.8 inch thick neck blanks just so I can have those dramatic swoops um, for the headstock into the neck and then the heel into the neck area. Um, just think it looks a little nicer with that, with that kind of dramatic carve. Um, once that's in, you know, install your hardware for the tuning pegs. Um, always use tape or some depth stop to make sure you don't drill through. If I need to add it, if I've inadvertently, you know, cut out too much of the headstock on the top end, I'll add a veneer on the back or two just to add thickness. Um, so, you know, I have the, my tuners don't look too weird on the top. Then I go back in, drill the control cavity for the body, the all round around the back of the guitar with a round over bit and I'm and make sure that you do that before drilling the output jack otherwise you end up in the problem like I had last year where I drilled the output jack first and then did a round over forgetting that the the bit has a bearing that follows the side and then it dug into the thing and gouged out um, a piece of wood and that was a really nice piece of roasted swamp ash which I still have it's probably still playable but you can't use it in a you know, so everyone else can't see it. Um, but yeah, I'll end up, you know, mounting the neck to the body at that point, drilling my um, my bolts. I use uh, finishing washers, these nice ones from McMaster Car, and uh, some stainless steel bolts uh, that go into threaded inserts into the neck base. Those the little brass washers for the neck ferrules? The ones I have, are, I think, are, are stainless steel. 
they're they're uh, powder coated black and have a little matching um, countersink for the bolts that go through, so everything is super flush, and it just kind of looks real nice. The bolts I use are actually quite small, um, but because I use like, at least a minimum of four of them, I mean I have enough clamping pressure and a mechanical fit. Um, I'm not really too worried. Remember, I think on a guitar I used two. Uh, it was a Telecaster uh, copy for a friend of mine, and that neck wasn't going anywhere. So I used four on these, and it looks really nice. Um, I do final carving on the heel, you know, any of the the comfort carves, like a arm bevel so the 90-degree corner doesn't dig into your playing arm, a belly contour, because before I thought you didn't need them, but I've got a belly, and it makes it that much easier to play. Um, <laughs> then, you know, mount the pickups, do the electronics. Um, oh, before that final sand, mount everything, and then you're going to do your setup process. And so, I, you know, depending on what I'm doing or what look I'm trying to achieve determines how high I sand up. Like for this guitar, the one I'm building for, um, for the Bloody Wood guitarist, it's this prototype 7 that I'm making with a epoxy inlaid body um i'm gonna probably take the top um sanding up to about 800 or a thousand see how how it's gonna be if things are looking really good i might take it up even higher and then um you know micro mesh the actual epoxy part which is going to be stupidly intensive but it might be worth it if it gets that shine on there and then i'll either oil finish it or i don't know to be determined but um, I got a cool set of uh, Trident two Hellfires, which are in my guitar, my personal guitar. Um, Adam made a set for this guitar as well. And so I'm uh, pretty stoked on those. And those are Elysian pickups. But um, I think for the most part, then the setup process happens. And I usually save the nut making um, for the, as the very last step, um, which kicks off that whole setup process. Um, and that's typically how I go about this whole thing. What I'll, usually after I get things rough dialed in and, you know, it's playable, sounds good, I'll put it down for about a day or so. And over the next two days after that, I'll go in with the files and just make one or two little swipes here and there just to make sure the, um, it plays kind of just right. And I'm just basically taking off like half a millimeter here and there from the nut just to make sure that um, I think I sent a video of this to you, Chris. It's like I I don't really use the um, action gauges. I'll kind of just go by feel, and I'll the amount of pressure that I need to use to depress the uh, string to the first fret, like right after the nut, usually tells me if um, if I need to file a little more. And other people may be like, "This is." This is stupid. You should be, you know, using the traditional methods. And I have, I have on those too. But I've found that the best playing guitars I've made, um, ultimately, it comes down to how that first fret feels. And so, if you go to, like, I go to any of my favorite playing guitars, and I press those, and usually there's there's barely any any give, and you get the note you need. It's going to be a little sharp by a few cents, but as long as it's not like halfway through to sharp, like to the next note up, then you're, then you're pretty much good. But um, I realized when I roughen the nut um, filing, 
that first fret depression is usually has a lot more resistance. And so I spent uh, another day or two just tuning it up. And once I've reached that point, you realize across the board that it just plays like super well at that point. Yeah, I agree with the whole setup by feel. I've done it both ways where I'll use the, the feeler gauges and the straight edge to get the, um, to determine like how many feeler gauges to put so that it's the perfect height of the fret and then stack a few more on to, you know, file the B and E and then they, um, you know, the other, and the other strings, but I've always done it the same as you, Alex, which is by feel. I do the little trick where you fret the third. And so the strings <clears throat> resting on the second fret and then, right. you know, I think somebody told me like there should just be like a gnat's ass is the way they described it. And that always stuck with me, but just a tiny, the tiniest bit of air underneath it. And I use that method and it's, to me, it's always been better than using the feeler gauges. I don't know why. Same. I mean, I feel like, you know, if the feeler gauges and the, the, the traditional methods are great if you want just a quick, quick process, but since I'm not doing, you know, tons of setups a day, I don't, typically need to more or less standardize my process honestly like from a systems point it would make sense if i figured out what my you know feel methods translates into measurements but at the same point part of my i guess the the joy of going through a guitar building process even though it can be painstaking is part of this the feel approach of setup and once you get to that point where you're like that one little, the couple extra swipes on, you know, this slot to that, and this little adjustment of the the saddle just changed the way this entire guitar felt, and now it plays just that much better. Because at that point, like, your returns are more or less either nothing or exponential. Um, and you don't feel the change until it happens. And you're just hoping it's not like, oh, shit, I went too too aggressive and now it's fretting out or something like that but um i was talking to um, my girlfriend molly about it and i was like it's the from the day that i could play it she's like it sounds great and then a day or two later i made a couple more adjustments i'm like now it plays great like this is something i'm proud of Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's that one little spot. Like I know they have that um, that modified fret rocker with a bit of the diamond grit on it, which is exponentially more expensive. And I'm like, there's there's no way I'm paying for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I, I found that the more kind of like uh, what you mentioned, Daniel. Like I used to use a fret rocker on all my fret levels, and I 
I don't think I use it really at all anymore unless I'm trying to like diagnose a problem. But uh, yeah, I I just do like the full level. You don't really even need to use the fret rocker. Yep, a beam and some sandpaper. The, the yep. sticky sandpaper, man. <laughs> that, there's no. It's not rocket science, but man, it's magical. <laughs> so I got a question for you guys, and it can be a bit of a polarizing topic. Um, at least it is in some of the some of the forums. Um, so I I've used it once, and then I never used it again. Um, when I have my frets in, I, I I don't use a notch straight edge, and I've I've never mm-hmm. felt the need for it because going into the whole fretting portion, my board I already know is flat, and the mo- and you know it has a truss rod under it, and I do activate the truss rod, truss rod a bit before I level the fretboard. Um, and I do that because I know as soon as I, I put the strings on, this will start counteracting, so it allows me to get super low action, because um, that's what I like. Um, but as soon as I get the frets on, you've already changed the kind of the yeah the architecture of how the neck is. But I know my board's flat, and so when I get the frets in, those are kind of as flat as they can be. I'm looking at. This guitar, I just fret with a rich light fretboard, and I already know I'm going to have to pop out two of the frets because I just, I guess I didn't press hard enough or something. This this was a challenge. Um, but for the most part, they go in pretty smoothly. It shouldn't take too much metal off when you start using the beam and sandpaper. But sometimes it does, and that's just part of the process. But I know that once I get it all leveled at that point with the beam and sandpaper, that the not straight fretboard um, straight edge isn't going to do too much for me. And going forward, I'm going to look at the distance on the tops of the frets because that's all I'm really needing to know at that point. Um, and I know that once the tops of the frets are leveled and there's no marker on top of the frets, that's it. I, I'm, I'm pretty much good. I'll still, just out of habit, use the fret rocker on the higher frets because sometimes if I sand a, a bit more on that, on that end, just for a bit of a fall away, um, you know, it'll, there may be a bit of one here wonky spot, but if it's all level and all markers coming off evenly, there's no real need to go back in. Yeah, I use a notched straight edge. So my process for a neck is I, I do all the woodworking and there's no fret. I don't press my frets in until um, after the neck is carved and everything. And then, um, and then I press my frets in. Typically it will make the guitar have a back bow when you press the frets in a little, even if it's slight, it'll still be there. And so I use a notch straight edge to get the board itself back to flat or back to straight. Um, and the reason I do that is, yeah, you could definitely use a straight, a, a, a regular straight edge and just put the, uh, put it on the frets and get it close, close enough. Like, I don't, I don't think there's any problem with it, but I use a not straight edge, honestly, just because I have one. And then I'll do that to get the, the, the fretboard itself flat before I level it with the beam and sandpaper. But it's close enough to be deadly. I mean, we all use jumbo frets anyways, right? So even if it's not dead perfect i mean there's so much meat on those frets that it's not going to matter and you're right alex as long as the top of the frets are true to one another if it's off by a 10 one thousandth of an inch on the on one end of the neck versus the other it's not going to make a lick of difference you know what i mean 
Exactly. Yeah, I've I've pretty much landed on the like I I do both. I'll check it with a notched, um, and I yeah I've just found that at at the end of the process, all that really matters is that the tops are uh, level to one another. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll check it with a notch just to make sure there's nothing like really strange going on. Um, and you know, definitely do that on uh like if I'm doing a level on a guitar that I didn't build, um, just to see if there's like a weird twist in the fretboard or something like that, uh, just to be aware of. But yeah, at the end of the process, all that really matters is that they're relative to one another level. Yeah, well said about the relativity. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I... I uh, <laughs> Uh, while you went through your process, Alex, I went through and I found like an old, uh, note, uh, here in my notes app that had all my steps listed out from when I built my eight string Genova. Um, and my process has definitely changed a little bit. So I went through and kind of like altered the order of certain things, but it looks like for the body, I have 21 or 22 steps listed and for the neck i have 33 steps listed <laughs> so it's that's not bad uh, yeah it's uh yeah uh and there's definitely some overlap like when i get to the toward the end of the the body it's like kind of assuming that the neck is already done um but yeah i'll just to to rattle them off uh for the body i have thickness plane and glue body uh for the blank and then thickness plane and glue top, uh, clean glue lines. Let's see, wrap body chambers and channels, rough cut body shape on the bandsaw, rough cut top shape on the bandsaw, glue top to body. And there, there's like so much detail <laughs> that's being omitted in every one of these steps. But uh, let's see, flush cut body uh, to template. Um, and that should be flush trim body to template. Uh, let's see. Route binding channel, uh, route control cavity, drill output jack holes, because uh, I do dual redundant output jacks, uh, route neck pocket and pickup cavities, and that is, I also do that different now. Um, I route my bridge pickup cavity as one of the last steps now, just so that I can fine tune it um, to the distance of where the bridge gets placed. Um, so that would just be route neck and neck pickup cavity. Uh, let's see, carve the, mm, yeah, that's different now too. <laughs> uh, let's see, carve back body, uh, carve forearm bevel, co uh, yeah, copy the shape of the neck pocket to the back of the body, um, position and drill neck joint bolt holes, drill strap button holes, fit the neck, uh, measured mark bridge locations, drill bridge grounding holes uh, through to the pickup cavity, uh, install bridge, shield cavities and routes, and then finish body. So that's like a very quick and dirty process for the body. Um, and then the neck, I've got uh, plain and glue neck laminates, Thickness plane, neck blank, 
uh, route the scarf joint angle, measure, cut, and glue the headstock blank, uh, glue the headstock blank. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there's a step missing here. So then it would be um, like route the, the headstock blank level to the top surface of the neck. Uh, rough cut headstock shape and neck shape on the bandsaw. Uh, cut excess thickness off the back of the headstock. Flush trim the headstock and neck uh, to templates and blend with rasps. Um, rough cut headstock veneer, glue veneer, trim veneer, um, drill tuning machine holes, route truss rod channel. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Okay. And then the fretboard thickness plane fretboard. Um, okay. Yeah, I see how I was doing them. Uh, tape the, uh, so yeah, I use like the, the fret find 2d software um to do my fret scales and everything so tape the fret template to the fretboard uh cut the fret slots and nut slot rough cut the fretboard shape um and then i use this is i don't know where i first read this tip but i swear by it and it's uh definitely saved my butt a couple of times i use small brass locator pins um to line up my fretboard oh it's the biggest thing uh yeah so i i I only use two and since i um angle my truss rod i put uh one like kind of where there is more uh i guess like meat left of the neck on either side um of the diagonal if that makes any sense so i'll do one kind of underneath around the third fret and then one under probably like the 15th fret area um and just sink them like I don't know, four, four millimeters, something like that. And then, uh, cut just a, so there's just a little nub left sticking out and then kind of line up the fretboard exactly where you want it to go and press down so that it indents the backside of the fretboard. Then use a, uh, 16th drill bit just to drill some little holes for those to go into. So then that way, when you're in like uh glue up panic mode and you don't want to think about lining up the fretboard perfectly as you're clamping it, you can just like tape off your, your truss rod slot, glue it, you know, apply glue to everything. And then it just automatically lines up perfectly uh, in those two little pinholes. And then you can clamp it up and not have to worry about it, like drifting off center or anything. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Do, do so, you, um, I forgot like on, on, on around this stage too, I also end up, taking pictures using my uh, using my phone uh, where my caliper is on different areas of the truss rod cavity. It was more important when I was doing it manually because sometimes my Bosch router might slip like a millimeter or something here and there. But um, it's been more consistent using the uh, origin. But I'll still, just out of habit, take a picture near the nut of how deep the, um, the truss rod is, like the actual depth. And then mm. closer towards where the heel carve will be. And then I'll just save that um, just for the extra assurance later on. Is that so that you don't have to, so that you have a reference of when you're carving the neck so you don't carve into the truss rod channel? Exactly. I'll usually just take whatever that true number is, add about like a little bit more than like an eighth of an inch or more, and then allows me to 
draw in on the side of the neck under the fretboard, kind of the taper, the amount of wood I want to carve out. And I used to just um, use a bandsaw when I was in the co-op shop in Reno. Um, but since I don't have a bandsaw, I end up, I just put on like a super aggressive uh, sanding belt on my uh, oscillating sander. I think I sent you pictures of it on the last build. Yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, you know, sand away close to the neck and then just drag it across and and then it just shaves off all that wood um and then it right up to that line and i know at that point as long as i don't touch the midline at that point i'm safe to carve whatever i want on either side mm-hmm. um this this build i'll have to have a little bit more consideration just because i have uh carbon rods on either side but they're not they're not any deeper than the Allied Luthery truss rod, which honestly, thanks for that recommendation, man. It's been, those are super slim. It's like 0.38 eight inches, um, and they just kind of kick the hot rod truss rods, but. Oh, dude, like the, yeah, I've seen uh, some horror stories with the hot rods um, in terms of how deep they mount, like, and. Uh, it's 0.55, like, it's, I think if I remember ridiculous. correctly, or 0.44 it, or 0.5. You just can't use them and have a slim neck profile. Like, you, you're going to go through the back of the neck. Well, also, um, they're, they're low-profile prof- truss rod. They need to say on the web, and I think I put a comment on the, the feedback there, was it's uh, a truss rod that needs to be heel-mounted so you can use their installation thing. Because I did in the neck, and because of the way the the adjustment head is, it's actually sunken deeper than the actual length of the truss rod. So you end up taking away more wood at the more critical area where breakages are likely to happen. It's by a right. lot. It's by a lot too. It's probably by. I know this doesn't sound like a lot, but it's probably two or three millimeters lower than the bottom of the actual truss rod. It's true. That's the reason I do mine heel mounted, so that it's down there where it's. You don't take any meat off the heel, and so, but you're right. Yeah, I, I remember I've, going through like, man, which truss rod am I going to use? And I was like, to hell with it. I'll just do a heel mounted. And that's what I've done too. Like I, um, I think my last build that I had a, you know, a headstock mounted one was the Vumsi build. I think that was build twelve or something, or thir- uh, yeah, it was twelve. And um, after that, I switched to all heel, just because I'm like this. I'm 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 dangerously close here. Um, mm-hmm. and Daniel, what truss rods do you, do you usually use? I actually use Bitterroot truss rods. They're like old school two-way truss rods. Nice. I've heard of Bitterroot guitars. Nothing fancy. They're probably from China, but they, <laughs> they, they work, man. I don't know. I've, I used, I bought some, I had some Stumac ones and the Bitterroot ones at the same time when they were not installed in guitars. And I'm like, I can't tell quality wise any difference. <laughs> yeah. I've also gotten a couple Stumac ones in like when I was beginning and they show up like just pre oxidized. Like, <laughs> like, the, uh, yeah, they're, I'm, I don't know where they're storing those things, but there's like a little bit of surface rust on the spoke wheels and stuff. I'm like, okay, this, there has to be something better than this. The spoke one that I built with that ebony topped one that was the black machine inspired one, that one came from Philadelphia Luthier, I believe. Okay. I have a couple of their sanding beams. They make good stuff. They do. Yeah. I like them quite a bit. I buy my fret wire from them as well. Nice. 
let's see. So yeah, then after the locator pins, um, glue and clamp fretboard, then uh, I flush trim the fretboard to the neck. And all of my flush trimming nowadays, I use my uh, table router rather than uh, plunge router just because, you know, you don't have to worry about a table tipping uh, into your into your workpiece and it's super easy to just keep everything at a, a perfect 90 degree. Um, let's see, sand radius into fretboard, uh, drill and install fret markers, uh, measure and undercut frets and tangs, press frets into the fretboard, trim and file fret ends to, to the board, uh, file and dress fret ends, fine tune neck pocket fit, uh, carve the neck profile, level, level and polish frets, uh, install and fine-tune nut, finish the neck, and then just very blanket, like, install neck, install hardware, string up, and set up. <laughs> uh, and that's my process. That's awesome, man. I, do you guys ever play around with aging your hardware, or do you keep it all? I have. I have um, not. <laughs> yeah, so my, it's actually the, again, going back to the kitchen sink guitar, I was like, I wonder how aging hardware would go. So I ended up getting, I aged, it was gold hardware, um, and I aged a hip shot uh, knob, a shaler, um, like three-way switch uh, cap, I guess. And uh, all the the gold saddles of the hip shop bridge, and I used a, um, I think I just ordered it on Amazon. It was like a PC board etch. Um, let's see, I think I still have it down here. Um, and it was actually super easy to do. I I like, I scuffed up the hardware a little bit first, um, just probably with like a uh, thousand grit or something, and then you apply this stuff with a uh like a q-tip and let it set for a couple minutes and then you just rinse it off and it's like perfectly uh aged oh, that's cool there's so many fun techniques to age hardware I, I like all of them i think they're all neat well what do you typically do here so it's i'm holding it right now uh it is <laughs> it's a very intimidating looking bottle there's like skull and crossbones and shit all over it but uh, it's made by MG Chemicals. It says it is ferric chloride copper etchant solution. Oh yeah, they use that for the uh, Damascus uh, etching, like to reveal the the layers. Oh, okay. Because one will kind of erode differently. Is it kind of a dark, uh, rusty iodine color? Is that that stuff? Or... Yeah. Yep. Okay, I've seen. Yep. It. That's. Yeah, it worked great. Daniel, what I do you typically do? For for aging. Yeah. Oh man, so I have a pool and so I have muriatic acid on hand at all times. And so and so um I take some glass Tupperware. I mean, you could use regular Tupperware because the acid doesn't react with plastic, but I have some glass containers that I use and they're kind of like Russian nesting dolls so that they fit it within one another. And uh you'll fill up the big one with a just a small amount of acid. Um and then I'll put the parts in another glass container that kind of sits inside of it. And so it's not touching the, the acid. It's just in there. And then I'll just put the lid on the big one. And so the fumes from the acid is what interacts with the nickel plating. I've only no way. aged nickel. I don't think it works on chrome. 
And then you just kind of mm. keep an eye on it. I usually set a timer and then just go back and check it. And then it'll, it'll, man, it, it does, it does a job. I, that's the, what, that's actually what I did with the nickel hip shot bridge that I did on that Paisley one. And oh, okay. Yeah. And it'll make it look like it's a 50 year old piece of hardware. It, it does a good job. Some people use vinegar, I think, but I use acid because it's faster. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, I found it definitely like the process that I use revealed uh like what which manufacturer's uh plating is thicker than the others for sure. <laughs> um but between Hipshot and Shaler, I'm I think if I'm remembering correctly, the Shaler uh plating was like really intense compared to Hipshot's. Yeah, the plating on on the hip shot stuff scrapes off pretty easily. I was yeah. kind of hoping that it was gonna be a bit more robust, but I even though like on the last build when I was uh, using a a nut driver to screw in the um, those hex hex nuts for the tuning pegs, mm-hmm. um, I guess it like I tightened and then it kind of slipped a little, and then it just and it wasn't even that that big of a slip, but it removed a bit of the the black covering coating. Yeah. Oh, man. And I was like, fuck, okay. All right, I'm going to have to go cannibalize one of my bills and swap this out. Uh, dude, get one of the uh, the Music Nomad. Um, I forget what they call it. Maybe the Octopus or something like that. But it's their like little bit driver that has all the common uh, nut sizes on the back end of the handle. And they're all nylon. Um, oh. So, so they can't ship the hardware. And you I want to look at that right now you can't really over tighten anything. Uh, that's what I use for everything recently. If I become quiet, it's cause I'm looking it up on my phone to buy it. <laughs> that's funny. I was doing that earlier. I've never aged. No, I take it back. I have aged tuners. I had a, I had an Eastman guitar that I wanted. Nice. Yeah, dude, it was, it was I had two dude, of them. Eastman's are like the such a an unsit like nobody knows about them, but they're awesome. They're incredible. <laughs> and, and everyone that's had one that I've talked to is like, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, you're that's funny. You're the second person I've talked to in the last couple of weeks that randomly brought up Eastman. Um, and my dad and I just started building an acoustic kit from Stumac, and uh, we're gonna match the neck profile to an Eastman that he has. I had their, I think they call it an SB55. It's uh, basically a double cut junior with a, it had a Lawler P90 in it. Incredible mm-hmm. guitar. They did, I think they call it their antique varnish. It's a, like a hand rubbed varnish that they did on that guitar. But it had, an, what was cool about that guitar is it was, it felt and looked old. And it was just like a, it was just like a Gibson, but it had an ebony fretboard which you don't see that on a, on a junior. Um, but it had regular, what were those? Cluson, I think mm-hmm. with the kind of the snot green. Um, no, I'll take it back. That one had the little nickel kidney bean, butt tuner buttons. And so I, I like locking tuners and it's course of action. If I'm going to buy a guitar, I just need to factor in another hundred bucks for a set of tuners that are locking. And so I did that with that one, and I bought the same ones. I think they were the Goto SD90s in nickel, mm-hmm. and I aged those the same way. And I had another Eastman that was their Les Paul. Um, 
kind of clone. It was the black one that was that was reliced. SB fifty nine was that one in black varnish, and I did the same thing with that one. It was the same set of pickups, but it had those plastic greenish uh, ivory looking uh, Keystone tuners. Sure, but kind, yeah, kind of jade like jade rock looking. Yeah, yeah, those are the ones. Yeah. Yeah, and then I went on a big Gibson kick. So I bought I think I've bought six Gibsons in the last six months. It's uh it's a pr- Oh man. That's incredible. I could see myself doing that with PRS, but I think I'm uh too adverse to Gibson <laughs> to fall into that hole. Unless it's like obscure old Gibsons, like I don't know why. I really like the old like Marauder and um Oh yeah. I have a, I have a grabber base next to me right now. Uh and yeah, just the weird Gibson designs that like, uh, you know, they had one designer, uh, probably in like the late seventies, early eighties, that came up with all these designs that just didn't stick around at all. Those are the Gibsons I like. <laughs> Those are cool, man. I don't know. Gibson's a company that people love them, they hate them. It's easy to knock on them because they've had some questionable decisions over the last. Oh, that and they're all their QC issues, man. They they just don't build them like they they used to. No, they, they, yeah, it's frustrating. I'm a fan and I can't, I don't defend the, the problems that they've got. I've got the guitars that I own. I love, I mean, if, yeah. you, if you're into them, they're great, but I can see how people would prefer to have a different brand or a different model. Well, the, the model that, uh, I'm, I couldn't think of the name of it, but it's like my favorite thing easily that Gibson's ever released is the Nighthawk Blueshawk. Oh, I dig uh, that one with the, the slanted guitar. pickup. Yeah, it has like the weird slanted pickup and but everything about that uh guitar like addresses everything that I don't like about the Les Paul. Like it has a twenty five and a half inch scale. It it doesn't have a tunomatic bridge. It like <laughs> it's everything that I wish the Les Paul had. Um so yeah, I don't know. I though again, super weird uh uh era of Gibson instruments, but that one that one's my favorite. Yeah, they've they they with their whole like play authentic campaign. Yeah, I just I I just can't look at them the same. It just yeah, it it was such an a kind of an affront to kind of what they were and stuff like that. I mean, they're going after small builders, and I mean, like you, I mean, you're, they're they're not really threatening your market share. You're Gibson. Like, yeah, you 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 have to like. I mean, if they were just. I mean, granted, I understand if someone starts copying your stuff, then you know you get a little. Yeah, you don't like that. It's it's not cool, but but I mean, a lot of what we do harkens back to a lot of these classics and Gibson's a classic. Um, you know, they're not going to steal their market share by any means, but I think they recently went after Jericho guitars I saw yeah, online. Yeah, Jericho guitars is like done, I think, because they went after them. And that's that's kind of shitty. I mean, like it's <laughs> I mean, if it was a true threat to your brand, if it was a true threat where yeah. you know you were losing your customers, I can understand that because then it's feeding off of your IP. Other than that, it's more like a lot of the the stuff is more just an homage. Like, but in a way, I understand it. But in the grander scheme of things, I don't. I don't think it's worth it for them to go after small builders. If anything, if they're chill about it, they might get more business. Right. Or something well, like yeah, that. Like, I mean, if you think about like what are the two like most iconic guitar brands and shapes it's Gibson and Fender Fender doesn't care you know like they're I I 
could be wrong, but I think that the Telecaster and Stratocaster body shapes are like public domain at this point. Um, and they like, they don't care if they're copied with like warm author kit guitars or anything. And I mean, look at result, PRS like, with the silver sky. I mean, yeah. mayor, mayor would jump from one strat to the other strat and I'm like, right. come on, man. Yeah. And like, as a result, I respect Fender way more than I do Gibson because Gibson is just being kind of like petty about all of it. And it's also like, you know, people have been copying Gibsons for a long time and now they care for some reason. Like, it's just weird. Yeah, it actually, the way I understand it is, so Fender tried to protect their body shape, uh, trademark or IP. I, I, I don't can't remember if it's a copyright or a trademark. It's one of the two, but it's a, it's basically an IP for them. Fender tried to defend it in the, I think in the 80s, but the, the, the courts ruled that they had not tried to protect it in so long that they had allowed it to um, become common. So the strat shape and the tele shape. And so the courts ruled that they can only trademark their headstock designs. Mm. And so that's the reason that Gibson defends it so fiercely is because they don't want to fall into the same fate as Fender where their shapes become generic. I kind of so. get that. That's kind of a crappy ruling, though. I mean, if you're the... You're the first one, regardless of how long it's been out there. I mean, yeah. unless there's like some statute of limitations. Yeah, so Gibson's stuck in a situation where it's either defend it or lose it. And it makes them look like a bunch of assholes. I'm the first to admit it, but it's it's something that they are kind of forced to do because they don't want to suffer the same fate as Fender. Interesting. Yeah. That does put a lot of context into it, actually. It looks well, and They could do a better job at positioning it and messaging it to the masses so that they end oh yeah no having that one guy from that music store come out and be like yo we're gonna come after you play authentic i'm like okay you know what you know if, yeah. if you're if you're really <laughs> if you're really concerned about it put a cease and desist letter but keep it off off the media as like this big company going after the little i really guy. like mark agnesi he he and i went to the same college in nashville um but they after that campaign came out um it, who was it? I think it might have been Cesar, who was the like the, the brand president underneath um what's his name? JC, I think Curly is the CEO of Gibson. They came out and basically said that Mark was just kind of the the front man. It wasn't his idea, but he was the the unfortunate soul that had to record the video and make it look like it was Mark's idea. It was actually people Right. I mean I I, I believe that too. Uh, yeah, it's, that's rough. <laughs> it's a mess, dude. I, like I said before, I can see both sides. I, I love the guitars that I own, but if it was my company, I'd probably, I mean, hindsight, right? Of course. Have a little bit of a better public uh, delivery. I, I mean, yeah. th those optics do matter too, especially if like, you know, you, you, you're this big, huge company making, you know, a, a wide variety of guitars. I mean, your public messaging should be with that in mind i'm all about you know protecting your your ideas and stuff like that of course but the way you go about it doesn't have to be that aggressive where you're you know gonna scare the living daylights out of people be like look dude change a couple things of your design make it different enough there you go you know do your thing yeah I'm also the same guy that's building wirebird copies that are a copy of a, <laughs> of a telly so it's like I can't really say well, I mean, like even for even for my designs, I don't I don't claim that they're like originals or anything. I I'm pretty uh, open of that. I I wear my influences on my sleeve, and it's kind of a combination of all the different stuff I like. 
where it, you know, you can say it kind of looks like this, it kind of looks like that, and it kind of looks like that, and you're correct in all instances because those are the influences I drew upon. Yeah, um, and I'm not a business. I don't do this for the money. I've told all the it. clients that I've sold a guitar to is always like, why do you not charge more money? And I'm like, man, I don't do this for the money. It's fun. If there's somebody that wants to pay me money that'll basically cover my cost to, to build them a guitar that they'll you know, be happy with and maybe share it with their friends. To me, that's what, that, what I love about building. It's just sharing. No, absolutely. Sharing the- it's exactly the same thing here. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's just such a small community, all of us guitar players, um, or I should say guitar builders. It's hugely small. Like, it's a really small world. I mean, like I said, and like, like Chris and I, we'd been following each other online a little bit, and I didn't know he was who he was on 7-String until he reached out to me and was like, you know, I want to, hey, let's meet up. I'm in Reno. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... It's it, it's so funny, like, trying to put into perspective how large or small the builder community is because, you know, I, from, like, as, as much as I can gather, it is a pretty small community, but then you have Stumac, which is, like, a pretty big company, and they've been in business forever, so, like, someone's buying their stuff, you know, <laughs> like, enough to, to stay as like large and successful as they are. Um, so maybe they just sell a ton of tools to people that are getting into like building their first guitar or like, yeah, I don't know. Like it, that, that ratio doesn't make sense in my head of like how, uh, I guess successful they are in relation to how small the builder community is. Right. Like how many, like a lot of the tools that I bought from them, you just buy it once. Like how many, we yeah. talk about leveling beams a lot. How many leveling beams do you need? And yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, buy, I can't tell you though, I've bought, I buy all my electronics from them. And so I can see how you would buy things. I mean, it, they're still the best place to get CTS pots from. Exactly. And so. I, I, I think also it's, uh, they're probably, it's a situation like Warmoth, you know, like Warmoth, I think if I'm not mistaken and I, believe i read this before i think they're one of those companies that kind of also helps fender like ghost build some of their stuff too, their necks or mm. re- you know replacement stuff i wouldn't be surprised if stumac also supplies tools for all of these huge um you know workshops and stuff Other like that manufacturers too. that makes sense you know i, I feel like if, if you're if you've if you've cornered the market that much and you can't really stay the way you are without having competition come up and the only way you stay on top is by being the the person to go to um, for everyone and including the big ones because you have like philadelphia luthier you have like crimson as well and they all sell their own individual tools but if you're the one that kind of i don't say got there first but at least got your hand in all the big cookie jars then yeah they got it yeah, Stumac is kind of like the the Pro Tools of right. <laughs> of Luthier tools. They, they've been point. around the longest. It's, it's like the standard. standard. It's the, the most, most expensive. expensive. <clears throat> yeah, I, I've thought about the economics of the guitar business a lot, and I always kept going back to it's just put it out of your mind, just in, enjoy it for the the passion and the fun fun of it. But I, I am still intrigued by how a lot of these companies, um, you know continue to do it. I would, I'd personally love to know 
like I've done napkin math about, you know, if Gibson makes X amount of guitars, you know, I know the raw material cost is probably this, and then they've got to pay for labor. And it's like, they don't make a ton of money mm-hmm. um, profitability wise, but I'd love to see, I'd love to see what their balance sheets look like to know. Cause we see them as this massive company, but it makes you wonder, are they really that big? Yeah. That profitable. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's uh, also how they, the, you, you know, the, I guess, what, what do you call it? The uh, opportunity cost. They're kind of capitalizing on that by having everything more or less automated for a lot of the small processes. Like if you look at, you know, let's just say not excluding the whatever master built or, you know, luthier made, the actual luthier made ones in, in the factory. A lot of the stuff that comes from overseas for a lot of these companies are going to be in these big workshops where, you know, it takes a second to cut a fretboard. Like, um, right. You've seen those, they have these, like, you know, one of those fret cutting slot, um, um, table saw blades. It's got 24 blades on it. They have 24 blades just as a gang, um, (laughs) gang saw. And so they just put the wood cut, boom, you're done. You don't even need to check it all done. Just do this day in, day out. So something that would take us like, what, how long does it take us to, you know, cut a fretboard if you're doing pocket as lots it's going to be a little bit longer but you know for us it'll take minutes to an hour or something let's just say yeah it takes about cnc my... like 20 22 minutes it's like a minute a slot roughly yeah and if you think yeah. about that like everything adds up so if you're able to sell five guitars in this in the span that you know you you fret a fretboard or glue something then you know you, you're you're making a lot more than just the one that churns out every now and then. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why the, the luthier made ones are going to be naturally more expensive um, because it's all about that time. One of my favorite builders is Doug Cower, And he, he mm-hmm. actually did a podcast. I forget who it was with, but I listened to he, it. He was on the luthierist a couple times. Maybe that's where it was. But I remember him talking about his small shop. It'd be basically like if one of us guys had a, a helper or two. And they build, I think... I think they finish, you know, they're probably working on a couple dozen guitars at a given time, but they finish and package up and ship like five guitars a week. And I'm like, man, yeah, that, that'd crazy. be like the next step of where a hobby builder could go is to get to that level. But then you've got to have sales to support it. And um, I, I don't know about you guys, but my, my I might get one email a month at most. <laughs> and so it's, yeah, it's like, well, it's pretty impressive. Like even what Doug's done and he built, I mean that's impressive for for a small shop to do five guitars in a week at his his level and finishes and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. I look at um there was a there was a pinned thread. I'm, I'm on sevenstring.org now, and I don't see it there anymore. Um, do you remember it was in the luthier section, luthery section, and um, it was I think by Rob Thorne uh, of Thorne Guitars talking about CNC uh, versus hand. It's like yeah, I've, the I've, truth about CNC. I've added it up. I spend about. 50 hours on every guitar that I build me touching it. It's a lot of time. How do you, how do you track that? Cause I've tried to figure out like an efficient uh, way to track my actual time um, on a build. And I still can't like figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. I remember it was like five hours on the CNC machine. And then there's probably another five hours of sanding. I think I might have added in time for like glue ups and and uh, grain filling, dry time, and things like that. 
But um, it was a lot of, <clears throat> man, it was a lot of time. And I'm like, if, I remember doing the math, and it was fuzzy napkin math again. I was like, man, I'm paying myself like a dollar an hour. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So your, Alex and I went through our build process. And so you're the only one that uses like an actual CNC. Um, like since you've started using CNC, what is your build process look like? Yeah. So I, so I still mill my own lumber and everything I go, there's a really great lumber shop in Dallas that's got some great woods about all my maple from them. And then there's a local guy. He actually lives only about 10 minutes from me. He's kind of a small, he sells wood out of his, out of his house. He sells a lot of wood, Alex to uh Todd LaRose. I think that's his name. Oh, no way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think most LaRose. of my stash is, is LaRose's stash. Yeah. 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 So he sells a lot of his stuff to him. And so I buy my like black Limba. I've bought, I bought, I buy my Wingate from him. And um, anyway, so I buy my, stuff it's just like i forget what the lumber term is it's like surfaced on one side basically four four quarter s1 or something like that and then so i'll mill it to size you know joint it um plane it to thickness and then glue up Um, that's how i do my necks for bodies i'll just joint i have an eight inch jointer and i'll joint each half of the body and my planer's my planer is only um, thirteen inches wide. It's one of those Dewalt like heavier duty, but but it's still like a hobby machine. And so I'll cut my body blank sizes so that it just barely fits in the planer. It's like I'll do it like twelve and three quarters. And then whenever I glue it up, it's never perfectly flat. And so I'll I've got this fixture on my CNC. I'll basically bolt it down and then I'll surface the top of it with a, like a surfacing, um, end mill. And then that'll get the top of it flat. And then I'll, then I'll, uh, run it through the planer. I do it that way. Cause I'm kind of anal about my body blanks being perfectly flat and I could never get it perfectly flat with my, my bench top jointer. The, the fence on it was just kind of crummy. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, since you and I both have some like black machine inspiration going into this. Do you do like a 35 millimeter thick body or how thin do you go with your bodies? 35 on the nose. That's it. 35. Yep. That's, that's the magic black machine number. I've started to go a little thicker, um, like 40. Um, and I think that's kind of the sweet spot of where my designs landed just because of the way that I do the contours and stuff. But uh yeah, first couple black machine clones spot on right at thirty five. <laughs> thirty five. You, I mean, you guys will be happy to know I just did the conversion. This latest build is thirty nine millimeters. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the thinnest I've gone so far. Hey, you'll get there one day, man. Just keep going. <laughs> just keep planing. Yeah, I'll, I'll get my chisel out. Right, <laughs> and the hammer too. Don't forget that. <laughs> oh, that's funny, man. So yeah, my bodies are always thirty five, and then the neck is um three quarters of an inch for the next shaft. And then the fretboard's always a quarter inch. So my necks are always exactly one inch thick. Um, I guess I'll do the body from start to finish. It's actually pretty simple. I'll, um, so do all those processes to get a, it's like 13 inches wide by, I usually do like 20 inch long body blank. And then I'll line it up on my CNC along the center line. So I'll get that glue joint perfect on a, 
on the center line of the CNC that I've got in my, um, I have it drawn on there. And then uh, I'll drill locating pins along the center line. So one at the butt end where the strap button would go and then one along the center line above where the heel is. And then I'll, I'll drill that and then I'll put in these quarter inch stainless steel like dowel pins and that keeps it flat. I don't use hold down clamps or anything. Honestly, I just use double-sided tape. And then I'll nice. use a, a spiral quarter inch end mill to, you know, route out the top. So you're going to cut the pickup cavities, the neck pocket, and uh, my electronics routes on the top because it's like a telly. Um, and then I'll flip it over. And then so you can imagine when you flip it over, since it's on the center line, it's a mirror image. So you can use the same origin for your CNC uh, cam setup. And then I'll run the back profile. I'll, I'll hog out the, uh, what do you call it, the belly contour. And then I'll do a, a round over bit to smooth it out. And then it'll, then I'll put the, uh, then it'll carve out, it'll also carve out the, the perimeter of the guitar. Um, I, let me take that back. I actually do the back of it first and then I flip it over and do the top. And then whenever I'm done with the quarter inch flat that cuts out the pickup cavities, neck pocket and control and the contour, then I'll put on like a, I think it's an eight, a one eighth. And then I'll drill the, the little holes for the, for the bridge, I always use a hip shot. So I'll do that. Um, and I'll only drill them like three or four millimeters deep and then I'll finish them out on my drill press. And so that for the, for the round over, uh, do you use the CNC for that also, or is it like a pattern bit on a normal router? Yep. I use it on a uh, table router. Okay. Or a router table. Said said that backwards. Yeah, I do that. I do that by hand. And then I'll also route the binding channel on that as well. I've mm -hmm. got some like, uh, I forget what they're called. It's not a binding router like that Stumac sells. It's, I think it's called a, what's that rabbit and datto? No, that's not it. It's like, they're like a, like a mortise. That might be the one that it's called. I can't remember the name of it. I bought it from Amana. I think most of my router mm -hmm. Amana bits. Uh, Amana seems to be like, this is kind of what I've discovered. I I suspect a lot of other more expensive bit, uh, you know, supposed manufacturers are actually resellers that are just rebranding Amana bits. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I've uh, like, I use, uh, well, I, I don't want to throw them under the bus or anything, but yeah, I, I've had several bits that like I have, the expensive version and then I have the Amana and I'm examining them. I'm like, dude, this is, there's no way this is not out of the exact same factory. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I've, Me too. I've never paid a lot of, I've never paid more than maybe 25 bucks for a quarter inch end mill. I've paid more for like round over bits and things like that, that are a little more like, I don't know if they're more complex to manufacture, but I've never paid maybe more than 50 bucks on a router bit. Yeah. And so that completes the body. And then I'll, I'll drill all the other holes um, on my drill press. So I use a template, like an MDF template for my, uh, you'd think that I would drill the, what do you call it? The string ferrules on the back of the body for the string through holes on the CNC. But I actually do use a template for that. I just found it's easier. Um, and that completes the body. And then it's really just gluing on the binding, scraping the binding, and then sanding and grain filling it's nothing nothing too complex 
And then for the neck, uh, same as y'all, it's more complex. I used to use the that process where you drill the little locator pins. I had these little brad nails that were like the exact mm-hmm. same size as my smallest drill bed. And I'd drill the hole. I'd get it lined up. And then I'd drill a hole in the nut slot. So my nut slots are different than y'all's because y'all use like Gibson style where it there's not a slot for the nut. Yeah, and yours, yours is captive, right? Yeah, yeah, like a fender. Yeah, I, I, I do both, actually. I The one here, actually, since I've been starting to make like the, the flat fender style um, headstocks, I've, it's just been part of the fretboard as well. Okay, so yeah. And I, so I'd do one in the nut and then one in the 22nd fret, and then that's how I'd glue it on. But now I... So going back to the CNC machine, I'll put it on, drill the locating pins along the center line, one at the, you know, one about an inch away from the nut, and then another one about an inch away from the top of the headstock. And then I'll do the back of the, the neck first. It'll hog out the, the meat of the neck profile, and then I'll use the roundover bit, the ball nose, to complete the headstock, or the, I'm sorry, the, the neck profile, the smooth part. Then I'll flip it over, use the same locator pins and then I'll like cut the, the truss rod slot and then all that access stuff that I do at the heel of my guitar. It actually ends up having to take a little bit off the heel where um, like right next to the neck pickup because if you don't take that off, it would s- stand proud of the body and you couldn't put a pit guard on it. And so it, it does all that. And then I take it off and then I'll, oh, and then I route a, one millimeter deep channel around the perimeter of the guitar neck that is about a millimeter or two away from the the actual perimeter of the neck. So I know like I need to keep the fretboard within this boundary. And then gotcha. I'll, and, then I'll, and then the next day I'll put it back on the CNC and then it'll, uh, then I'll radius the fretboard with the roundover bit. It'll hog out the the top of the headstock because you know fender headstocks are like down below and then I'll cut the fret slots with the 0.023 I think it's a 0.6 millimeter bit is what I ended up finding yeah it the conversion uh comes out to like 0.58 something something yeah for, uh for that bit I can't tell you how many of those are broken lots Dude, uh, yeah. So, the, so many. <laughs> the 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 build that I just finished up for my buddy Ben um, was the first one that I did like an elaborate fretboard inlay on um, with the with the Shaper Origin, and uh, I ended up using a 0.4 millimeter bit for a lot of the um, a lot of the like more intricate lines, but a lot of his inlay was mother of pearl. I don't know if you've used Mother of Pearl before, but that stuff is so hard. And I think I probably broke about $400 worth of bits oh, before I no. found one that could actually cut through it without, without breaking. breaking. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that sounds awful. The first time I did a Rosewood uh, fretboard, it was actually for my personal build. I um, It's the Seafoam Green one with the all Rosewood neck. I probably broke... Not four hundred dollars worth, but I think I broke five of them. And what I what I learned is rosewood is so oily that it was gumming up the oh. the end mill, and it would 
just basically clog it up, make it a bit oversized, and then it would just snap. And so I had to really finesse the toolpath so that it would come out. It cut like two two fret slots and then break, and then I'd have to start over, and then it would cut two more, and I was like, oh my goodness. And so that was <laughs> that was quite the learning curve, but it was a good experience, you know. Yeah, that's crazy. And my, my I feel like when I first started with the Origin, I would break a bunch of bits, and then I realized I needed to really pay attention to my feeds and speeds. And so um, Sam from uh, Shaper helped me out trying to troubleshoot that. Um, and then since then, it's been pretty easy. I, um, yeah, I realize for these rich, rich light fretboards or any of the composite fretboards, um, even though they're supposed to be like a wood replacement, they don't behave at all as how we think of woods as far as the compression and stuff like that. These won't move at all. And so um, when you're when I slotted this thing, I did it with a, a .023, like the typical fret tangs. But I'm going to have to probably use like a .03 or something like that just because it's not it like the force needed to press in a fret for some of these. And one of them just didn't even, I'm looking right now, it's like the middle part of the fret didn't even go down. Didn't even see it. No. Ugh. And so I'm going to have to go in. I'm going to take some of that uh, Bob Smith Uncure and just flood it through the slot, wait for a little bit, heat it up just slightly because i don't want to heat it up too much because of this is you know it's a composite board i don't want to accidentally delaminate parts of the board right and pray to god that i can get some of these slots out i think i won out last night and i re re um deepened the slot and then did it but yeah this has been a nightmare with the rich light but um you know one of these things since i know we've been going on for actually this is, this is we're approaching two hours now this is joe rogan um, link I know, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, in a in an effort to to wrap up, I know, uh, Daniel, you were saying that you're you're probably going to take a little break for a little bit, um, and I touched upon the whole, you know, work life balance between you know a business aspect, a hobby aspect, of building, and then when life gets a little too crazy. Because I know for me, it's kind of been the opposite where recent schedule and stuff has been just insane through the holidays and I couldn't get to any of the builds I wanted to. And now situation's a little bit lighter. And so now I'm just going, you know, full send on all of the things I wanted to do before things get busy again. But yeah, it's how, how, how has this been, um, for you? No, man, I'm, thanks for bringing that up. I, um, you know, I take my, um, not to get like too serious on the podcast or anything, but I take my you know, personal health and happiness and my family and all that. I take, you know, that, that stability very, very serious. And so I, my job is my career is it's real, it's very stressful. Um, and so it kind of takes a toll just, you know, whenever you've had a long day, you guys can relate, you know, you, you have days where you just want to finish work. And then when you get home, the last thing you want to do is, you know, get yourself covered in sawdust and, wear your arms out with sandpaper and you just want to kind of relax and be with the family. And so, um, I found, I found myself and it's a good thing in my opinion. I've, I've told you about all the guitars that I've been buying. It's like, I've just kind of refallen in love with the instrument, um, and playing it. And so I, I've found myself like all I've wanted to do is just play. And I haven't had as much, I guess, drive or, 
interest in building. And so one day I woke up and I was just like, I think I need to take a break. I think, you know, kind of a, not an aha moment or an epiphany or anything, but it's just like, I think I'm done for now. And so I kind of giving yourself the permission to, to just kind of be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got a bunch of other hobbies along with, you know, keeping up with the things that my kids are interested in with sports and and what they want to do. And so I just, I, I don't know. I was at peace with taking a break. I've actually sold all my gear. I sold all, not my gear, but my tools. I sold my CNC machine. I sold my planer. I sold my jointer. I'm selling my drum sander today. Uh, oh, wow. I sold my drill press. I think the only tools that I'm going to have left is uh, all my little hand tools that I use for setups and my fret press. I'll probably end up selling that too. And my wife was like, who cares? Just buy it again one day. I mean, it's um, it'll always be there. And so, yeah. I don't know. I've, I'm building out my... Um, we just got new floors put in my office. It had carpet and I was like, I'm going to turn my office into like my little guitar room where I play. There you go, man. And so we bought a couch for there and I'm just going to start to play the guitar more than, than uh, worry about building. And I'm going to finish up one build that I'm working on now. And really all I have left is, is finishing it. It's um, I need to put a couple more layers of, of nitro on it and then wet sand and buff and set that bad boy up and, It'll go to Canada as well. That's where that one's headed. Nice. And uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I love the instrument. I love building, but I'm just taking a bit of time off. And I mean, it's it's always one of those things, like if you wanted to get back into it, wading into it, you kind of know what it's like before and after CNC. So if you wanted to build one here, you just make a template, you have your router, get a jigsaw, and you'll make it work. And you'll probably still make an incredible instrument regardless, but it's never truly gone. Yeah. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a time. I think I had all my tools in my garage like most people. And and we're my wife and I are big into fitness. And so it was just take – and we have a home gym in our garage as well. And so it's competing priorities. And so that one, that one beat out. When I'm not – building guitars I'm usually doing something fitness related with usually with the kids or my wife and so cool man yeah I um, mean it's 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 important like trying to find that balance and kind of giving yourself permission to to really do things uh, you know it's it sounds like oh of course you should be able to do that but um it, it's hard to do that like I remember when I um, was done with um fellowship up in Reno I had, I was like, oh, I'm moving back down to Vegas. I'm going to have my own place, my own workshop and stuff. And work through the pandemic was just so ridiculous that when I came home, all I wanted to do was nothing. Yeah. yeah. And I had everything in, in the garage, everything I needed. I didn't have to go to a co- co-op shop. I didn't have to do this, that, you know, rent space. And I realized during my training, I would go and pay someone to use their space so I can make a mess. Um, here I had everything and I, and I didn't want to do it. And it, it was like a year and a half or two years, um, you know, that I didn't build anything cause I just didn't have any energy or will to do that until last year. And then I finally built a guitar after like two years. Um, and it felt great, but it's, then I had to study for boards and stuff during the summer. I was hoping to get this one, uh, build for a friend he's one um he's a colleague of mine at at work and he wanted something for his dad and so i finally built that and then i've been wanting to get a guitar into karen's hands um just so he has one and you know 
try out some interesting new things I haven't done before on a guitar just so he can road test it. And so I'm, I'm finally getting to that. And it's, it, it's, it's tough, you know, doing one thing or another. It's like you, you think that there's going to be a perfect balance, but something always has to give. Yeah. Life has seasons, man. And, uh, oh, definitely. It's just the way it goes. Actually, yeah, it's, um, I like that. You know how you know how when you watch comedy stand-up shows, there's always a uh, like a punchline that um, is kind of an echo to an earlier segment of the stand-up series. Yeah, you know what I'm talking yep. about. This is where I throw in the punchline. I'm really taking a break so that I can drive hype like Black Machine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Just kidding. I love it. <laughs> I'll end up starting a, another brand called Hype Pepper Fox. Let's go. Yeah. We're getting, soon we're, we'll see some $20,000 Pepper Foxes on Reverb. Yeah, right. I own two of them, <laughs> so maybe we, I can retire one day. That'd be amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad, man. I'm, um, that, that kind of break and, and balance is going to be good. And if you come back to it, then, I mean, it's going to be even better. No doubt. Um, and so, yeah, I mean... Chris, how, how you been? I know you've you've had uh, some periods of time. I think for you, it's more forced just because of the whole, uh, what was that, fracture of the arm? The humors? Oh, or? yeah. Well, yeah, that was, uh, that was, this is, 2022 was a weird year. I broke my elbow twice, um, and it, it was like in the middle of a build, and so that build had to be postponed twice. <laughs> um, and I finally wrapped it up. Um, uh, just last month in January and, uh, my buddies Ben and Chris came up and picked it up and it turned out great and everything. But just after that whole like series of events, I was like, I'm just going to take, I need like a breather need to take a break from building for a little bit. And so, uh, like this month, February, like this is, the month of my birthday's in. Um, I was just like, I'm just going to relax and take February off. But ever since I've like shifted my mindset to like February is my month off. All I can think about is planning my next builds <laughs> for, for when I'm done with my break. I'm like, man, I'm going to build this weird one and like experiment with this. And I'm finally going to like, uh, start my buddy Anthony's build. And I have like four in my mind in the pipeline for this year. That's how um, it goes, man. That I'm super excited about. So yeah, the yeah, times I, I have to like prepare for exams, I'm always like planning out the other builds. That's how that Koa 15 scale inch guitar came to be. Was I was yeah. like, what if I just make a small six string, not a ukulele, but a small six string. Mm -hmm. And that's how all that happened. Nice. That's actually how I knew I needed to take a break. I used to always, some nights I would lay in bed thinking about, oh, it would be cool if I did this color or, you know, all my guitars are the exact same as far as specs go. They're just different aesthetics, different woods. But I never, I didn't find myself like laying in bed thinking about what the next one was going to be. And I think that's how I knew. Because before it's mm. been, oh, I'm going to build a Black Limbo one. So I'd go buy a shit ton of Black Limbo. It's like, oh, I'm going to build a Swamp Ash one. Then I'd go buy some Swamp Ash. Man, I can relate to that so much. Like that's that's what I was feeling when I first moved back down here to Vegas. And honestly, the break was perfect. Like you take nice. that time, you just do other things, and then your your um, I don't know, you just your reserve gets built back up again. And then when you're ready to do it again, you just do it, and you're like, I'm just picking up where I left off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One day, 
I think I'll do it again when I can find a shop that is not my house. But that'll mm. be it'll be later. I got to figure out what that would look like one day. For sure. Yeah, I think like cuz right now my shop, like my workshop is uh converted. It's actually like a converted couple of spare bedrooms um in our place that we knocked out the wall in between. Um they were really small bedrooms. <laughs> so now it's just like kind of a long rectangular room. Um, but it is like, it just in terms of like my perception of the shop and how like close it is to everything else in my personal life, I guess, like my space to relax and everything. Um, I would, I think in a perfect world, my workshop would just be in like a detached garage outside, you know, something like that, where it's like close enough that I can go, you know, like apply a coat of finish or something if I have a free 10 minutes, but it's not, uh, it's not so close that it's like always a part of my world. Yeah. That's what happened with me. I wasn't using it and it was just there staring at me. Yep. <laughs> Over there doing back squats and, uh, I've got a CNC machine just staring at me like, how come you don't ever come play with me? <laughs> Very, very relatable. That's funny. Exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we got to do this, guys. Oh, um, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm generally excited we, we were able to do it. I've, yeah, I've been. I've sure. been so like like before I knew it. Like a week went by, and then a week went by, and I'm like, damn it, I need to actually start like putting notifications in my phone. <laughs> and like Chris reminded me, I'm like, shit, let me just do this right now. Yeah. And then yeah. you know, then it just happens. So, I mean, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this um, this discussion. I guess um, for those who, who kind of want to check out your previous work, um, how, how can they find it um, online? Yeah, I'm on Instagram exclusively. I don't do any other social media just because I don't do any other social media in my personal life either. So at Pepper Fox Guitars. Um, awesome. So yeah. And uh, Chris, I know, I mean... Tell us, like, what's what's on your mind right now for your next project? Uh, I'm actually going to hit up Daniel after this to talk about spraying a gold top Genova um, that I'm pretty excited about. So, yeah, it's uh, that builds like I'm really excited about it, but it is kind of like it comes from uh, a bit of like very bummer news that I found out about. So uh, KGC. Um, or killer guitar components who I've worked with a lot, um, like since I've been building and they milled all my custom spec brass blocks, um, for my tremolos. Uh, I just recently discovered on their Instagram that, uh, both owners, the father son, uh, duo that ran KGC both passed away over the co the course of COVID. Holy shit. Yeah. It's, it was wild to discover that. So I have one of their brass blocks left that they made for me. So it's going to be kind of a tribute guitar, uh, for them that I'm going to install that into. Let's do it, man. You know, I already told you. Oh, pup. I think that was my first interruption, man. We almost made it. Not I know, right? <laughs> I know. I've got two kids that are under nine, and that and I, oh, you know, yeah. I thought it was going to do pretty well, and then they got me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna hit up Daniel about that. I was already talking to Adam about um, what pickups he suggested for it, and 
I was just you know, like last night I was tossing and turning in bed trying to decide on what woods I wanted to use in the neck. So <laughs> yeah, that's how it is, man. I, I'm, I'm excited is. about it. Cool, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm, uh, I'm working on Karin's build. He's the, uh, guitars for bloody wood and I'm going to have to do some adjustments on this fret, this, uh, fret installation I did. I'm not too happy with some of the way this went in. And so I'm just going to do some touch-ups, just did the epoxy pour on the inlay on the body. Uh, I'll send you guys some of the pictures in the chat. Yeah, it um, turned out awesome. Um, I'm super stoked what, with that. So you said that you, the, the epoxy you used for that, you got from your local woodcraft? Yeah, it's a company called uh, System 3, and it's their um, mosaic. Is that the marine epoxy company? I think I think it might be. It's kind of like West Systems, but this one I think is a little more forgiving. Like you can you can just eyeball it. Um, West Systems is the one I was thinking of. Yeah, West Systems is used to be very precise, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, System Three was was pretty easy to use. Long working time. You got about 45 minutes before um, things you know harden. Um, I was able to do this whole body inlay, which I'll I'll send you guys. And I used a um, a dark black metallic uh, powder pigment along with some copper like sparkle and um, a red a, it's from eye candy it's called a Yamagata red originally I wanted like in the test it showed like red streaks and stuff but the way it all kind of blended together it made this like dark mystic purple black which is honestly pretty awesome and I'm kind of stoked to when I sand this up to see the kind of swirls and patterns underneath. And so I'm trying to debate how I want to finish it. The base wood that it's in, it's pretty soft. And so part of me wants to do like a, a hard finish, but I suck at hard finishes. So, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. Send that one to Daniel too. On, on, the, <laughs> on the epoxy, I do all my Fox inlays in epoxy. Yeah. And pro tip, um, after you sand it up through a higher grit, wet, a cloth or a napkin or something with some acetone and then just give it like a quick rub and it'll make it pop. Oh, okay. Like a, it, it does it kind of like gel the top layer. Yeah. You know, how acetone will melt plastic. Yeah. It'll just like smooth out all those little fine scratches and make it, make it smooth. God, God that's, that's a great, great tip. tip. I, I want to remember that. that. So Daniel, what epoxy would you use for your inlays? Man, I've used a bunch of different ones. I've used the Stumac one. Um, and then honestly, was it a nightmare for you like, like it was, was for me? me. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like the Stumac epoxy for inlay work. It was terrible. My favorite one is actually something, I think it's called like Rockstar. It's just one of those random generic, like rebranded epoxies, but it's, I think it's one of those, I think it's similar to one of those little kits that, you know, kids can get and do you know, little epoxy pours to make earrings. At least that's what my nieces and nephews do. Oh, those are great. I think that's what this is for too, only on a bigger scale. Yeah. It's a longer working time. The bubbles can work with their way out of the bottom, I think. Yeah, and I hit the bubbles with a heat gun. Same. Use the butane torch. Yes. So yeah, and, and when I was doing Ben's uh, inlay with the black Stumac epoxy, I tried using a heat gun and it would like, sometimes get all the bubbles out but i also had some epoxy like just not harden all the way it kind of uh cured to like a neoprene rubber consistency that i had to dig out and redo i've had that happen um, 
And then I also had it just like cure before my eyes uh, because of the heat gun. <laughs> I was like, dude, what? It, like you're supposed to hit this with heat, right? Like what, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> I, I had that happen last year with the Soul Belly guitar. That's using a, a bronze and a golden um, pigment. And so I put it all in in the beginning and I was like, cool, this is great. But it was like gummy and I had to like dig it all out. And it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, but the second second time I went in, um, once I cleaned it all out, which was painstaking, um, I hit it with a like a cigar butane cigar lighter, and um, it popped a lot of the bubbles. But um, the po- the epoxy I was using was Zepoxy, which I've used for, as like a sealing coat for a guitar. But um, there were still a lot of bubbles trapped underneath, so I had to use like black CA or something like that. And that was kind of annoying. This one though, I have six little pinpoint bubbles on which will probably just go away eventually so pretty happy yeah. anyways I'm, guys. I, I'm gonna probably try that same epoxy uh i'll send you a picture of the the box and stuff so you can, you can nice they've got a bunch of stuff did did you have to buy like two gallons of it or were you able to no. buy like a reasonable quantity these were two two eight ounce bottles it fits in a little box Ah, oh, awesome. That's, that's, that's been my other like main, uh, deterrent from buying anything from like West systems is like, dude, I'm never going to use this much epoxy. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It needs $200 yeah. worth of epoxy. Yeah. I think I used, I think I used maybe three ounces of the hardener, three ounces of the resin. And then I did mm-hmm. the entire pour and still had a little bit left off in the squeeze bottle. Nice. Um, so that was, that was pretty much perfect on right there. I got kind of lucky. Yeah, I measure, um, I measure mine with a scale too, like a little, like a tiny kitchen scale. It's even smaller. Yeah. Than ah, that. So they call. they have here. I'm gonna put on the the instructions. It layers just like how they say it in the instructions. Like I thought it was just a, a representative diagram of part A first, part A B goes on top, but it literally separates out into these layers. So. If you're doing it by one by ratios, it's an exact one to one, and it gives you how much by weight if you're gonna do use a gram scale. Gotcha. So this was super helpful, and it worked really Very really helpful. well. Gram um, scale. You use the proper term. A doctor would do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Anyways, guys, I think I think it's probably a good good place to wrap up. Um, I'm super happy to have you on, buddy. Um, yeah, man. It's been kind of a long time coming, and you know we'll we'll eventually you know have some more episodes, and then um, bring back some of the our I guess original original guests when we you know on these episodes where we all started. Um, but yeah, I mean I know we'll be we'll all be in touch, and um, I'll drop this episode up in sevenstring.org as well, and sometimes um, we got a little little bit of an audience base there which is great and they've been hoping to hear from uh hear from the podcast so this should this should be exciting yeah Yeah, for for sure sure. super cool man all right well i will see you guys offline and um and yeah until next time awesome we hope that you enjoyed today's episode and if you did let us know and we'll see you again real soon (laughs) 